You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. You may never again spend a night away from home. After you spend a night with Ida and Vincent. Ida will show you the way. You want us to uh, register? No, that won't be necessary. Your most terrifying nightmare could never prepare you for what happens to the guest. Vincent, you think in the years to come, people will appreciate us for what we're doing here? I have a surprise for you. Oh, goody, I love surprises. One after another, they come. One after another, they check in. Pray for the day they can check out. All we have to do is give to be happy. You'll never forget Ida. What are you doing here, girl? And you'll never forget Vincent. as you try, you'll never forget their secret garden. If you have the nerve, come for a night and stay for a nightmare. Motel Hell. No one will be admitted after the guests check in. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Ben Buckingham. Aloha, all. Shocktober 2020 continues with a look at the 1980 film from director Kevin Connor, Motel Hell. It's the story of Farmer Vincent, played by the incomparable Rory Calhoun. Farmer Vincent and his sister Ida run the Motel Hello 
but doing that one thing just can't make ends meet. So he makes his ends meet with meat, his smoked meats. And it takes all kinds of critters to make Farmer Vincent's fritters. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Motel Hell, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. So Heather, when was the first time you saw Motel Hell and what did you think? Motel Hell came into my existence very early. I remember being a little girl and seeing like the VHS at the video store and just the title alone, it made it sound like the scariest, like most intense horror movie ever. And I finally got to see it uh, when I was a little bit older, but still a kid on cable and really enjoyed it. It ended up not being nearly as gruesome as I thought, even at that age, you know. Um, it seemed a little more tamer than I expected. And revisiting it through adult eyes, um, I find it still very enjoyable. I think Rory Calhoun is the man in it. He's just the, the, the man, the man could make anything just charismatic and charming and compelling. Ben, what was your first experience with it? This was one of the many, many films that I had read about in Phil Hardy's Encyclopedia of Horror Films and had never been able to find a copy of. The Astor Cinema and Repertory Cinema here in Melbourne that I worked at for a bit many, many years ago had a 35mm print, and I found out the day after a screening, contacted them about it, and was told that the print was cactus, and that was the last time it would play. (laughs) So I then had to wait until it finally came out on DVD in Australia, which would have been... 18, 17 years ago. So my first uh, my introduction to it was on DVD and it absolutely lived up to all of my hopes and dreams for it. It was just exactly what I wanted and I've now uh, seen it numerous times and owned it on Blu-ray and have even taken part in screening it at a horror marathon at the Astor in a digital version. So it's it's a film that has weirdly been a big part of my life, even though it took forever to finally see it. <laughs> Yeah, this movie was part of my life as well. My folks weren't really into horror movies, or they liked movies, but they liked certain movies, and they would just kind of glom onto those, like the Rocky movies and the Godfather movies. Those were my dad's thing. Shirley Valentine, that was my mom's thing. But for whatever reason, I remember them watching this movie or talking about it afterwards. And my dad describing things like the people all in the garden with the bags on their head. And he was like, oh, yeah. And then he goes up and he pulls the bag off of one guy's head. And he's like, nope, you're not ready yet. And puts the bag back over. And then they would even do the whole meets meat. A man's got to eat. And it's just like, what is this thing that you guys are talking about? And it took so long before I finally watched it because I was kind of afraid because of the cover, because of the name of it. But I loved Roy Calhoun. I loved him in the Angel films. I loved him in Messiah of Evil. And I I was super excited to see Nancy Parsons and something else. I mean, the cast of this movie is fantastic. And when I finally sat down to watch it, gosh, probably only about a year or so ago, I was so impressed. And what a, a weird mixture of comedy and horror. I did not expect this movie to be as funny as it was. The Rory Calhoun thing is a real dad gateway drug for this film. Because my dad was the same. As soon as I bought, normally dad would be like, oh, what, what are you bringing to me now? And he's like, oh, Rory Calhoun. I love Rory Calhoun. And we watched it and he loved the film too. <laughs> 
yeah, I feel like there's a lot of aspects that, that suck people into this film with it. If they're not, you know, my introduction to it was an image of the final sequence with the pig's heads and reading about the, the heads in the ground and etc. Uh, but then you just should hand a DVD to someone and, yeah, it looks a bit weird, but oh, Rory Calhoun, or this, or that. Oh, yeah, oh it's, oh, it's the guy who did all those The Land of the Time Forgot films. Sweet. And you're suddenly watching it with your parents and they're like, how did I get here? Speaking of daddies, uh, I don't know if you guys are going to agree with me on this, but I think it's safe to say that Roy Calhoun is a total gilf in this. <laughs> I won't disagree. I'm not disagreeing. And I'll also say I'll take him in this over Clint Eastwood in just about anything else. So The stoic mummy. I love, I love Clint Eastwood's earlier stuff, but I feel like later on he just become kind of just like a Republican mummy. How do you, uh, how do you handle... Uh, how do you handle promises that you made when you were running for election, and how do you handle it? Uh, how do you handle it? I mean, what do you say to people? Do you uh, do you just uh, what do you mean? Shut up. Yeah, Calhoun has so much more personality and energy in this than anything Eastwood did from like eighty onwards. I think. Absolutely, and I'm so Mike. I'm so glad you mentioned his amazing turn in the Angel movies and. The fact that he's an angel too with Susan Tyrell. It's like, it's like I, I, even me as a four year old would have cast that movie. That combination. I had such a strange thing as I was looking at the actors in this that I, I know most of them by name and from this film. But as I looked at what they were doing, it's just this perfect kind of prism of films that I've always meant to see, but haven't seen. So I've seen almost nothing else with Rory Calhoun or Nancy Parsons or. I think I've seen more films with Wolfman Jack in it than anybody else in this film. <laughs> Which is amazing. It <laughs> <laughs> says a lot about the kind of films I watch. <laughs> Wolfman Jack, not to, not to go too far ahead. If my musical suggestions for the end of the show, you could play Clap for the Wolfman. I don't know if I can take that song. That's fair. Shall we get into kind of the meat of the plot? The smoked meat, if you will? It's an interesting mashup of a lot of different things. I talked about how they run a hotel. So we got a little bit of psycho going on. We've got the cannibalism angle, which you're not even like watching this film again. I tried to put everything that I knew uh, of it out of my mind yesterday when I rewatched it and just was trying to figure out where are the beats when it comes to the cannibalism and when do we finally, like when is it revealed? How is it revealed? It's an interesting thing to have that in there. And then I remember there kind of being cannibalism in the first Texas Chainsaw, but I remember it much more in Texas Chainsaw 2. And I almost feel like Texas Chainsaw 2 was more informed by this movie than the original Texas Chainsaw. I could totally see that. I mean, especially because the 80s were such a weird time for sort of the comedy horror hybrids. Not that there weren't any in the 70s, or, I mean, you can even probably date it back to Abbott and Costello, I mean, Frankenstein, but the 80s just seemed to be kind of a hotbed, where you had, like, Transylvania 6, 5,000. Oh, good I know, Transylvania 6. (laughs) Oh, I just watched it for the first time two weeks ago, and that was... I, oh, okay. I was not a fan of that movie. Oh, not no. a fan oh, at all. That breaks my heart. I, 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 that was one of those films as a kid I watched probably 10,000 times for some reason. Then rewatched it probably six years ago with uh, my housemate and my podcast co host. And we both loved it. I was like, yes, it's still great. And I, know, I think the next person I shared it to hates it. And I know somebody who's probably thrown a plastic cup at me for saying I loved it at a party. So, yeah, I understand. It's definitely it's a divisive film, but I stand by it as a, as a 
work of comedic genius, which along with uh, UHF has uh, a better Michael Richards performance than anything he did in Seinfeld, and I will die on this hill. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with you. I love both of those movies. And Joseph Bologna... <laughs> and Transylvania, come on, Mike. Oh, oh, so, so many good. great comedic performances. It's, so many. Yeah. <laughs> he just, he turns into Chico Marx, basically, when he gets <laughs> crazy. It's like, hey, you, you're clear to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> the comedy aspect's really funny, actually. There's all the talk about Toby Hooper, how he was originally signed on to direct this film. And so many people point to obvious connections between it and Eden Alive with the, the crazy hotel backwards thing and Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the cannibalism and rural aspect. But for me, my perception of Toby Hooper completely changed when I saw Spontaneous Combustion and his early short, The Heisters. It's basically like Roger Corman meets Joe Dante doing his Looney Tunes mode. It's like, this is Toby Hooper? Wait, what? <laughs> Have I got everything wrong about him? And that he has this, it's just this really like silly, over the top, Looney Tunesy, slapsticky kind of comedy of people, do, like the group of people trying to outdo each other to get the, the treasure. Seeing that and Spontaneous Combustion, which I think Spontaneous Combustion people was very, like leans into that blue velvet David Lynchian toxic nostalgia, but does it from an even stranger, twisted black comedy perspective. Pooper might have actually been drawn to this because of that comedy, because of wanting to do something sillier and stranger, which he would then lean into with Life Force and Invaders from uh, Mars, etc. Watching this, I was like, oh, I kind of wish that he had had, and I can see going to the original screenplay that I can see that that may have actually been what appealed to him more and that it might be the, the things that everybody else thinks drew him to it is the stuff that might have driven him away from it. And I can definitely see that he was that he was associated with this and then goes on to do Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which now that having read some of the screenplay of this, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 has kind of got one foot in the original screenplay of Motel Hell and one foot in the finished film. I'm going to have to watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 again now because I have no idea what to think anymore. I, and this is why I love Hooper. Every time I find a new film or a new piece of information, I have to go, who are you? <laughs> what what led you to this? You know, going and watching eggshells and just be like, oh, wow. Yeah, this, this, you're, you, Texas Chainsaw is you chilling out. When I think of like like some of the best horror comedies of the eighties, Return of the Living Dead, I think comes to mind as, as at least as one that I think bridges both elements really well. Because that's the trickiest thing is it's really hard to do great comedy, and it's even harder to do great horror. So you're taking you're tackling like two genres that are very difficult to you know do well. It's good at building like suspense in some scenes. In some ways, it kind of reminds me of like a really good Tales from the Dark Side episode. Speaking of 80s horror genre, like it's got kind of a a macabre sort of genteelness about it that I don't think you'd expect from a film called Motel Hell. <laughs> Farmer Vincent isn't really a villain. I mean, he is, but is he? Rory Calhoun does not hurt, but you kind of like Vincent mo the most out of everybody in this in this little small universe in the film. They do a terrific job of casting him as the hero and casting his brother as a villain. Like, especially towards the end, the more we get into it, the more you're pulling for Vincent. And it's, and I sit there and I realize I'm like, I'm 
pulling for the guy who's got the garden full of people with the slit throats that they're force feeding nutrients and things and that they'll hypnotize before they break their necks and pull them out of the ground. I mean, it's just like, why am I rooting for him? But they're super clever about the way that they kind of flip it on its head and make really all authority figures to be the villains. Like our first quote unquote villain character that we have is the guy, what's his name? Bob, the guy who's doing the inspections. And he becomes one of our first victims that we see, maybe the third person that we see taken down. But then later on, once the brother actually starts to do some detective work, he's the sheriff of the town, but he hasn't done jack shit. But once he finally starts to do his job, then it's like, no, 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 no. You shouldn't be uncovering this stuff. You need to let Vincent go about his business. Even his reasons for doing it, for his job finally, make him kind of a villain because he's only doing it out of self-centered reasons and to get the girl. So you kind of go like, oh, you know, piss off, mate. <laughs> you, do not, you, you haven't done enough to be able to flip your moles on a dime and we know that you haven't really flipped them anyway. Bruce is the worst, especially because we're introduced to Bruce. And actually, our introduction to Bruce is, I think, a brilliantly set up kind of, especially if you're going to this film, like not really knowing exactly who's who like if you're going to it like with fresh eyes like you know you see ida kind of attack him and you're like oh shit and but then it's like oh oh okay yeah he's vincent's little brother but uh he's just oh he's the worst he's borderline rapey like even because i guess we need to mention terry and who is our heroine of the film and we're basically introduced to her like her and her um father lover she definitely likes him a little gray she she likes the gilfs um i was not impressed as much with Bo. like he kind of looked like he legit looked like somebody's dad and not like a a gray a silver fox like rory calhoun <laughs> they're on a motorcycle vincent who initially again if you're on fresh eyes you think he's maybe duck hunting Though that's kind of more obvious in this script than the actual movie. And shoots out the tires. Bo becomes possible food. But, you know, Terry is spared. And so you end up having this character that is kind of sweet on Vincent and becomes very sweet on Vincent. And Bruce, because she's a, a comely young blonde, immediately just even when he's like first seeing her and comforting her, he's like grabbing, like caressing her shoulders. He he's too handsy. He's way too handsy. I I don't like Bruce. They should have smoked his ass. The film is very pro small businessmen and very anti government officials. <laughs> We've mentioned the script a few times, and we need to just talk about it now. I was kind of floored by the script. Like as I first started reading it, I was like, "Oh, there's there's some interesting differences here. This whole thing of Bo and Terry, they're not just on a motorcycle together. It's very strange because when we see them the first time in the movie, she's on the back of his of his motorcycle, but yet there's a sidecar. And in the script, she's in the sidecar, and more than that, they're like portable DJs or something and they're like taking calls while they're on the motorcycle and they run a suicide hotline plus they play music and they're playing a new song by this group called Ivan the and the Terribles and we'll talk about them more what is going on this is really different and then as I read the script more and more I'm like this is like a ZAZ style comedy there are things in here that are just 
absolutely fucking nuts, like way more than you would ever get from the movie. But then there are whole swaths of dialogue that are verbatim in the final movie. So it's just like this weird marriage of tone of this wacky comedy that's in the script with sometimes wacky comedy that we see on screen, but also with more the horror elements brought in. I mean, this is balls out comedy that we're reading on the page. And what we get in Motel Hell, the movie is not necessarily as crazy. I had to go and tell my housemate about the plastic shields with built-in windscreen wipers during the first dinner scene because Ida is so uh, voracious in her eating of dinner that there is food, like a mountain of food, a tidal wave of food flowing outwards from her, and they need a plastic seal that Finchon has clearly already designed and uses on a regular basis. And like, my jaw just hit the ground. I told my housemate, he was just like, what? <laughs> it's kind of... It's terrible for multiple reasons, but it's also, yeah, a little, like, if I saw that in a, this film, I don't know what I would think. I just don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm honestly kind of glad some of that stuff didn't make it into the final, because one thing in the film is, like, because it's Nancy Parsons, Zydek, there's a few little kind of fat jokes, and, yeah, this shit gets so old, like, and, I mean, you see that a lot in 80s, well, you see a lot in, in movies in general, but... Just like, oh, she's a big girl. She loves eating. <laughs> you know, it just, I don't know. It's, it's always like, yeah, okay. It's kind of low hanging fruit. But compared to the script, the movie looks like the most body positive, non body shaming thing you'll ever see. <laughs> like, like, like Miss Magazine backed it. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. They even go for like the her getting shocked by trying to change the neon light sign and do the old electricity gag, which extends over a couple of edits by the way the screenplay reads. This joke was a mummy when you wrote it, guys. I'm glad this is not in it. It would have really aged the film. That introduction of Bo and Terry gives kind of some personality to them both, especially Terry, who in the final product and the actress, she's she's fine. I mean, she's good. But Terry is such a passive character. Like she's a character that things happen to her and very little things happen because of her. You know, because of her actions. Like, I think the most is she investigates the little smoked meat room at one point after Vincent's, you know, kind of bends her about maybe someday teaching her the ancient art of, of meat smoking, which sounds, now that I'm saying that out loud, sounds incredibly metaphorical and lewd, which means it's amazing. But other than that, she's so, she's passive to the point of almost being like, like, like how concussed was she? When she was in that accident, because it's like, I want to go home. Oh, you should stay here. Oh, you're right. Okay. You're not asking any questions. <laughs> like, it's, it's almost, she's almost supernaturally passive. We don't even get the backstory of her being from LA and Bo's taking her out there. He's bought a farm and they're going to live on this farm. And she's all nervous about living in the, you know, away from the city and stuff. And it's like, okay, at least we had that as motivation because the terry that we meet in the movie to your point we don't know anything that happened to her with Bo or five minutes before that and we we will never know anything about like her former life and what her dreams and aspirations are yeah it would it would definitely be better to have more of her present but i've never felt that it really lets the film down because the character the other characters of the core family take up so much space in the film doesn't really leave a lot of space for her. You can certainly rewrite it to adjust that. As you said, how concussed was she? I it always got a gave him kind of like a 
Wizard of Oz is the wrong term of reference because Dorothy is quite active, but a Wizard of Oz aspect where she's been knocked out of her life and she's kind of in shock and she's just kind of going along with this strange new reality because she is possibly pretty heavily concussed. <laughs> and I, I think that does add an oddly unique aspect to this film and it works because the film is teeming with such big overtop, oversized characters that she kind of slips in well within that mix without letting the film, like it being a, a noticeable failing of the film. We also meet her a little bit earlier when it comes to the screenplay. We get them, we get Vincent shooting out the tires, and then when we see him show back up at the farm and bring her in, there's this whole weird gag about how he's going to take her to Granny's room, and they have to open up Granny's room, and it's just filled with uh, cobwebs and actual spiders and all this, and (laughs) there's this thing that Ida is wants to make, oh god, what is it? It's a thing that you would like put on a person's face and she's just like, oh, I can use these cobwebs for that. Poultice. And she even mentions to Vincent in the fi- final film, like, I need you to go get valerian root and this and that and the whole other thing. But it's so that she can make this. Terry is in there a lot sooner because we get a lot more scenes between the motorcycle accident and when we finally see her wake up than we find and then in in the final film than we have in the screenplay because it's pretty much we stick with Terry for a while and when she wakes up they end up drugging her with this hypodermic needle that they say is bigger than her arm and just have to force her down so then to your point also Maybe it's not necessarily being concussed. They might also be drugging her up. The whole injection scene in the script was... I mean, people think the Pulp Fiction scene is harrowing. I mean, they're they're basically like Ida... with her corpulence has to like sit on the the handle the syringe to get it to go and go into terry and then she like pulls it out and she like looks at and chuckles she's like oh (laughs) that explains it i should have sharpened it first (laughs) (laughs) no i i did love all the cobwebs yeah it's definitely the script's like surreal that whereas they definitely toned there's enough kind of whimsy in the movie but in the finished one but I don't even know. It would have it would have all just felt like Mr. the Mr. Creosote saying like that energy. It would have been just that energy through most of Motel Hell if they had have stuck to this version of the script. Yeah, and a lot of the that those early scenes set up quite a few kind of cliched tropes that aren't really in the final film. Like you're saying that she's Terry's come from LA, so it sets up more of the city country divide, which is pretty common in rape revenge slash exploitation horror films. And you also get that they explicitly refer to their their home as a gothic mansion next to a line of uh, motel rooms. So it's much more set up as being the psycho Bates Motel. The abandoned, cobwebbed granny's room upstairs feels like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of parent, grandparents' room slash psycho kind of thing, only amplified even more. So they, I, I kind of like that, the, yeah, the Terry and Bo stuff and the city-country divide might have been more useful, but I'm glad they ditched the things that were more obviously nods to older films because the sort of sources that they feel like they're drawing on here are stranger for this film and stranger for this genre. Cause I, the thing that it reminded me of most when I first saw it was all those rural country folk children's film that Disney would produce in the 60s and 70s. It's got that kind of aesthetic and colours and look and the landscape. 
this is the after dark version of Disney. This is all the stuff that happens on the farm when the kids have gone to bed. Well, and it is important to note that he has to do all of this stuff under the cover of night. Like, he does not go down to the secret garden during the day at all. And he just acts like a normal farmer during the day. And then at night is when he goes out and does his hunting and does his gardening, let's say. The one thing that I really liked about this movie, too, was when Vincent is explaining to Ida that this whole idea of the way that he captures these people is his art. Traps work out okay? Yeah. You know, I'm just beginning to realize how important they are to me. The bear traps? How's that, Vincent? No, no, no. I mean the traps. Shooting out the tires. Chains stretched across the highway. And the way we had you lying by the side of the road next to that old Chevy we set on fire. <laughs> you know what I mean, the traps. Oh, sure. But how come they're so important to you? Well, because they give me a chance to be creative. Oh, I sort of... Artistic. Yeah. In that way, the work we're doing here will always be as special as it is important. And then I also like his whole thing of how he and Ida are, they're kind of misunderstood and that maybe someday people will finally recognize their genius because they are trying their best to save the planet. This is an ecological film. Vincent, you think in the years to come, people will appreciate us for what we're doing here? You do understand. Well, of course I do, you dummy. Do you think I'm doing all this just for the fun? Somebody's got to take a little responsibility for the planet. Ida, you sweetheart. I'm sorry I underestimated you. There's all these little touches throughout that really make this film special too. Like, but you know, there's the obvious ones like the garden. Like, I noticed when they when Ida first sees Terry, she refers to her as it. And I don't even know, I don't think that was in the script, at least not the one we read, but it's such a great touch. And Nancy Parsons is so good in this and just really makes Ida such a oddball character and just, but makes her really compelling. Cause I think it'd be easy in somebody else's hands to make her just more repellent, but she does such a great job of balancing. And the fact that you constantly see Vincent using hand sanitizer, which I imagine back in the eighties seemed weird. Sadly, with the state of the things in the world now, I think all of us are like, yeah, we're with your brother. <laughs> Got two things of it in my purse. <laughs> I really thought that was going to come back. I thought for sure that that was going to be something towards the end. The other thing that the screenplay gives is that we don't have in the movie, and I'm glad that we don't have it in the movie because it goes nowhere in the screenplay, is at the beginning, there's a scene where Ida is letting some gas out of one of the pig corpses, and there's somebody with a cigarette, and there's this whole, like big explosion and you know i probably would walk out of the barn with their face all blackened one of those type of gags and then at the end of the movie when they're like oh we should blow this place up and burn it to the ground i was like well you had that scene earlier in the screenplay of the gases maybe you should use that but then it never goes anywhere in the screenplay and i'm glad that thus it's not in the movie because they don't burn down the place 
Yeah, that that was definitely it was it was a fun read. <laughs> I, but yeah, I I agree. One thing that hit me about the hand sanitizer is kind of thinking about the psychology with Vincent. It's just like you know, because a lot of people that, especially with farming, view animals as unclean. Pigs are especially viewed as unclean, um, and it's like, well, long pigs, which is you know, term for human sacrifice. Um, like, is it like this is how he re- like? after he like shakes somebody's hand, you'll notice he'll do that. And it's like mentally that's a pig to him and not like a person. And you like, and it's funny because the film is like really subtle about that. I don't think one would assume subtlety with a film called motel hell. Just the, t- <laughs> the title does not scream subtlety, but it's such a, it's such a cool touch. And um, I noticed in the screenplay, it even has him like spraying a seat down that he's sitting at. I'm kind of glad they didn't have that in the movie because that would just make him seem just, I think, more like a germaphobe necessarily than, you know, somebody who's farming out human meat. I've spent a fair bit of time studying cannibalism. Always a fun line to drop. And thinking, this is one I've, I've never really thought about it intensely as to how it functions with its cannibalism. It's kind of, it's pretty simplistic. It's not as complicated as something like Texas Chainsaw or Cannibal Holocaust, but in looking, the, the connections between it and Texas Chainsaw are really interesting. And going back to some of my heavy-duty academic readings on cannibalism, I found a couple of interesting notes that tie in with that, with the hand sanitizer and feelings of self and others and such. There was one um, from Maggie Kilgore who has one of my favourite book titles in my collection, uh, From Communion to Cannibalism and an Anatomy of Metaphors of Incorporation. A foundation of a crude system of values in which what is outside the territory of the self is bad and what is inside is good. A schematization that underlies many more sophisticated notions of individual and corporate bodies. That ties in like it's it's really interesting how this film is very much about that inside outside the texas angel does this a lot as well there's a lot of cannibal films have this with you know the the hills have eyes as well the good family versus the bad family your core values like there's a one of the first uh, people to write extensively about cannibalism was um montaigne in like the 17th century or something he wrote that each man calls barbarism whatever is not his own practice and that is Kind of, it's it's as you were saying before, Mike. That the cannibalism is kind of subsumed a bit in the background. It's never really super explicit, and even their relation to the outsiders is kind of subsumed. Like the most that you get it is when they're trying to deal with the swingers who turn up. Otherwise, the outside world doesn't exist to them because they have controlled their space so well and they have cleaned everything that is problematic out of their space that nothing ever intrudes on them until it's someone within their own space who turns on them being the brother there's some really interesting things in relation to that plus also it's ties to texas chainsaw massacre because in texas chainsaw massacre you know a lot of people forget that they run the gas station and so they're tied not only to fuel as food but fuel as industry uh you know mechanical technological fuel and that's sort of the, the agricultural and manufacturing kind of connection there, whereas this is a film where it's an, uh, a, um, a service economy rather than agricultural economy. This farmer no longer farms as such. Instead, they run a, 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 a essentially a restaurant, you know, take out food business, and they run a motel, which is a home and service. And so it's it's really interesting how that shift within a small amount of time, and maybe it's to do with 
the film being made by the Texas boy versus the LA boys. That's a really fascinating difference, which alters the film quite significantly. And by having the focus be, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre does this, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 does this as well by putting more of a focus on getting to know who the family are and with the, you know, the, 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 the cook being more of a central figure by being drawn more into the inside group. We are positioned more in relation to being this is who we are now, whereas the hippie horrors of Texas Chainsaw and Hills Have Eyes were more there's the external force that is trying to destroy what we have and we're battling that. So it's in that 10-year period from the end of the 60s to the 80s, it's shifted and now we are the cannibals. We've given up. We've gone over to capitalism. We've embraced business and all these kinds of metaphors of incorporation, and now we're just devouring. Something you said, Ben, triggered a film that I haven't seen in a long time, but I actually feel like is a really good one to compare it to Motel Hell, um, and they, they make a fantastic double bill, uh, is Terror at the Red Wolf Inn. Have either one of you seen it? Yeah, remember, I've got the poster on my wall. <laughs> oh, shit, that's right! I'm sorry, it's been, it's been, a, it's been a long Several months. <laughs> COVID brain annihilates everything. <laughs> I haven't seen Terror at Red Wolf Inn for a very long time uh, on, on YouTube an eon ago because it still has no – I'm amazed that the Nika Syndrome hasn't put it out yet because it's so perfect for them. But, yeah, I, I, a film that I virtually never heard of that I couldn't find and in a one-week period I found a mint copy of it on video – and a mint original giant cinema poster for it. So I've got that the giant. His net. <laughs> it's just like, what the hell? So I've got the poster I wore. And unfortunately, the video is a bit molded, so I haven't been able to rewatch it and revisit it. But yeah, you're, you're, from what I remember, you're absolutely spot on. It's the same kind of thing of like an older couple, you know, would be the nice parents or grandparents in the Disney film have their little insidious secret with a young girl turning up on their doorstep. It's very similar. Actually, something else that ties it together. I remember they being some weird scene with a shark. And I just remember that being one of the funniest things I'd ever seen in the film. I have to go back and revisit it, but I think of that now because, to me, Motel Hell is a joke. More than anything else, the film exists for a punchline, and it is one of the greatest punchlines in cinema. I'd I'd say that, yeah. I would too. No, it's it's so good, and especially because much, you know, the two films definitely share just having these these families that are very likable as opposed to like obviously with Texas Chainsaw it's just completely fucking terrifying (laughs) and brilliant and I always love it when films can have can kind of flip the script especially horror where you the monster or the villain or the killer you're like oh man wait no I'm with them like these (laughs) these normies are terrible and then you're like wait what am I saying (laughs) I mean the thing about I'm a vegetarian and I'm like yes Vincent like go Vincent but Uh, make some smoke, smoked, you know, tofu people, you know. Well, there's there's two two films that you know, I thought of while watching this that they kind of do that, but they're so grotesque that you just can't really get on the side of the anti-hero protagonist is Parents and Microwave Massacre. They're the suburban counterpart to Terror at Red Wolf Inn and, and Motel Hell. I think that the suburban aspect is the grotesque aspect that uh, doesn't allow us to get on their side. Yeah, if you ever do Microwave Massacre, Mike, and everybody runs for the hills, I'll still be here. I'll do it. <laughs> I saw that movie once, and yeah, 
Not uh, a big fan of that one either. I think Isn't I watched it, it like that- twice in a month because I had to make somebody else watch it to prove that it, I had actually experienced that. And I was like, I'm a wrong human being, but I have. And even when, today, watch it, I'm like, I think I might watch Microwave Massacre later today. Doesn't that feel, isn't the one that, like, has, like, part of its intro is this large-breasted woman in a tight t-shirt? Yeah. Yeah, that film is, yeah. It's basically the, minus the, uh, the, the family rape, it's the Rodney Dangerfield scene from Natural Born Killers with cannibalism for 90 minutes. Uh, it's, it's not good. It's not ethically or morally right but it just tickles some really horribly wrong part of me that enjoys the humor that surrounds cannibalism i actually i've some i couldn't find it but somewhere around here i've got a book that has a chapter dedicated to the weird associations of cannibalism and puns like whenever you know newspapers and books and everything like they if you're talking about cannibalism you have to put a kind of pun in it and this film definitely leans on that a lot with it it's like you know, the smoking meats and all that kind of aspect it's there's something weird intrinsically tying the two together. I think Microwave Massacre is something like that's it's so 100% committed to that aspect of cannibalism in ways that a lot of films just kind of like allude to or throw in a joke here and there. I'm just like, I am here for Microwave Massacre's dedication to being dreadful. The thing that I couldn't get over is that it's Jackie Vernon as the main character in Microwave Massacre, and he will always be the voice of Frosty the Snowman to me. So to have his voice doing all these horrific things, and I just kept waiting for him to go, Happy Birthday! The victims in Motel Hell are very interesting as well. We So we've got bikers. We've got prostitutes, we've got swingers, and we've got a rock band. Those are our victims that we see in this movie. And so they're all this kind of like fringe of society. It's very interesting how Vincent chooses his quarry. And a lot of them are people that won't be missed, though I think with Ivan and the Terribles having this amazing hit song shooting up the chart, they probably will be memorialized. This will probably do great business for their record label. That van, the Ivan and the Terribles van with that art is amazing. But there's no way you're driving through small town America and not getting pulled over constantly by <laughs> by, by Sheriff Buford, Buford T. Bubba. And John Ratzenberger's in it. He's the drummer, which is amazing. Not since his uh, role in House 2. That's another comedy kind of horror movie I just love, love, love. Though that one's really more action-adventure than horror, but... So you have him, the lead singer Ivan's got this great, obviously not natural, <laughs> fake beard to make him look kind of like Rasputin. <laughs> oh, that that beard, that's, that, that, oh, I just looking at it just hurts a piece of my soul. It's the only thing more ostentatious than the bus, <laughs> the van. <laughs> Hey, Ben, you know what that beard has in common with Microwave Massacre? (laughs) What? It's not good. I've got your back on Transylvania 6-5000. Yeah, when it comes to comedies, I I don't ask many people to have my back on what kind of comedies (laughs) I like. (laughs) The prostitutes, who are obviously kind of more on the high end, like, we're escorts, Mike. That's what they would say to you if you call them prostitutes. They're like, sir... We are high-priced, we are escort girls, we are not prostitutes. Yeah, but sex workers, Mike, sex workers. 
I noticed one of them is the lovely Roseanne Catan. I hope I'm saying her name right. And I kept thinking, I know this girl. And I looked at her IMDb. She was in Lunch Wagon, which is, a, which speaking of Microwave Massacre, <laughs> is another, Lunch Wagon is not a good movie, but it is worth seeing uh, Missing Persons, the band, before they broke. It was like right before they broke. And I swear to God, there's a scene where all three band members look so miserable. And you know, they were thinking, wow, two months ago, we were playing with Frank Zappa. Now we're in Lunch Wagon. <laughs> I had a lot of fun looking through actors and producers and writers on this film finding the weird stuff they're in. I have added a couple to my watch list. The number one that I have to see is Nancy Parsons was in a film called Wishman from 1992, which is like a terrible genie, like a genie's lost his lamp and needs to find it. I was like, oh, this looks terrible. And the cast list is Paul Lamatt, Jeffrey Lewis, Nancy Parsons, Paul Gleason, Brian James, and Paris and Nikki Hilton. I give up. I'm lost. I need my bottle. Directed by Mike Marvin, who we've had on the show before. He was the director of um, The Wraith. This film's written and produced by brothers Stephen Charles Jeffy. Stephen, Stephen Charles Jeffy and Robert Jeffy. And I, when I was looking through their filmography, they're mainly producers. Um, Stephen Charles produced Ghost, Near Dark, Star Trek VI, Strange Days, and The Fly 2, which is an odd mix. And Robert Jeffy worked on Demon Seed and uh, George R.R. R. Martin's Night Flyers. Stephen Charles, Jeffy had one directing effort of a feature film, and I was like, holy shit, I have that on video, and I'm really annoyed that I've never gotten around to watch it. I think it's going to happen after today, after we record a film called Scarab. The tagline is, I'm holding the VHS in front of me, a magical experiment turns into a nightmare of killings and blackmail at the hands of a mad sorcerer. Stars, uh, as the cover says, Robert Exterminator Jinty. And Rip Torn, it's satanic Nazis using Egyptian rituals to raise the dead. I'm like, why haven't I watched this? <laughs> like 67 people marked and seen on Letterboxd. So the, the writer of this, that was his one directorial effort. Apparently it is not good. And it's mainly worth watching for Rip Torn just being Rip Torn because apparently just turns up randomly and goes, ah, I'm crazy. The whole line, a meat meets meat. Um, yeah, it's got to eat. Am I the one that immediately thought of Victor Bueno in The Mad Butcher? Because there's this scene, which is this bonkers-looking 60s movie, with the, the great Victor Bueno, who's probably best known to people as King Tut in the original Batman series. What ingredients go in the secret recipe of The Mad Butcher's sausages? Meat is meat. If, even if you don't see the whole movie, look at the trailer because it's it's definitely I think worth noting in the um, the cannibal film genre, like subgenre. Uh, the Australian VHS release is one of the big sellers. Like it goes for a lot whenever it comes up because it's pretty rare. And the cover is like someone did a actual photo shoot of a fake hand and sausages and meat with a butcher like that. Perfectly, this is clearly not from the film kind of cover way. There's another film called, I think, called The Love Butcher, which was released at the same time. And I always get those two mixed up. And I think I've seen one of them. But, you know, who can remember? Mad Love Butcher. Which, ah, they all the cannibal films start to blur together eventually. There's a scene. Uh, and actually, this is perfectly enough. The scene where Revincent says, meets meet, where they're having a picnic. And it's Bruce and Terry and Vincent and Ida. This is something, there's touches in the film that are, that are more mentioned in the script, because the script mentions a, a, a lot of beer drinking. And nobody talks really about beer in the, in the movie, but you see these little gold cans that look like beer. 
but they're having this like this lovely picnic and Ida kind of intimates that she's about to spill the beans and Vincent just elbows her like real hard in the stomach. And I just thought like the way that that was like pulled off, that was like such a nice, nice little touch and just perfectly executed by, by Parsons and Calhoun. I'm really grateful that that scene is in the film because it's as we've come to recognize the domestic violence has a strong connection with psychopathology and serial killers, mass murderers, all the, the, the nasty whatever people out there. So I, I like that that's in there. And I think I know that they alluded a bit to it. I think a bit more in the screenplay. I saw a couple of lines that alluded to it. But even the scene, there's a scene where Bruce the sheriff is sneaking into the house and barges his way into the bathroom while Terry's bathing. And it's very intrusive, feels very controlling. But then Vincent's response is just as much an allusion to domestic violence. He comes in with a shotgun and it's really aggressive and shoots a hole in the wall, chasing him out. That scene kind of, it can just as easily be read as a very psycho controlling as it can be him trying to protect her from the grotty sheriff. And when he punches her, it has real impact. It kind of, you know, there's so many of these films from this era lose the impact of the violence, either through jokiness or repetition or hyping it up too much. And that has such a real moment that really grounds us and going like, oh, yeah, we do love Vincent, but he's also a really messed up, damaged person with serious psychological issues. Oh, you're so judgy. Ben, I've got a question for you, because I am no expert when it comes to the Texas Chainsaw movies. I really, I've seen two many, 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 many times. I've seen one a couple times. I saw the remake once. I've never seen any others. The idea in the remake of Arlie Ermey being a cop and also being part of the family, was that in some of the previous films as far as the cop as part of the psycho family? Oh, I'm trying to remember. It's been a while since I saw three or four. You should see four, though. Three is meh, but four is fantastic. Four is – I love four so very, very much. I always found that the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre just – it crosses over some of the territory of the original thematically and symbolically, but often skews it too much in one direction or another. The cop aspect, I think, I feel like maybe in three, there's a connection to the police. But to me, it's always, it, it was too much of an escalation of the themes of like the, you know, I talked about the, this film, Motel Hell, being very pro small business and very anti government. That it is, you could certainly apply a reading of this film as a kind of sovereign citizen's, um, what do you call it, like libertarian perspective where. The individual should be left to tend his garden in his own way. Any kind of intrusion from government or policing is uh, unwanted or bad or problematic. I think this film 100% pushes back. Like, it doesn't embrace those ideas, but you can read it as being that he would, if you actually got to ask Vincent, he would probably tell you that, yeah, he's a sovereign citizen libertarian. So I think that the having in Texas Daniel Massacre, having the family be so closely associated with the cops plays easily but it misses a lot of the point that the structures of society are breaking down in texas chainsaw massacre and if you bring the cops into it then it's that's a it's binding them to a structure that really they would only want to use for bullying 
which is such a small and more narrow point of view. It's a bit like how the grandfather in the original is so object, but not in a tangible way. By tangible, I mean that in the remake, the grandfather is has the catheter bag and is in a wheelchair and is made gross by, oh, look at him, he's got a catheter bag. And it's like, yeah, it, it's just a... It's a catheter bag. It's like it's 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 a tangible grossness that is actually not as horrifying or bad as anything that the grandfather is in the original. And by having the the Ali Emery's character be the sheriff kind of does the same thing. It's like, oh, you're just going with another trope that's actually quite simple. And, yeah, he's got power and everything, but part of the terror of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is that they don't have sanctioned power. Uh, they don't have sanctioned violence. They are independent and can move and go as they please because they have no, con- they have connection only to the land and the objects that they transform into their fuel. Yeah, I find it interesting that Bruce, as the policeman, is both in and out of the family. He's in in many ways, but then this whole thing about how he talks about how he ran away when he was 11 got him away from the family, let him become this sheriff character. And now as the sheriff, he's still part of the family, but he's not let in on the family secret. He's not part of the family business. Yeah. If you look at the characters, there's no character presented as being acceptable or as a person who, or group that could be a foundation of an accepted society. The couple we have are swingers that, by their very definition, in traditional terms, they're breaking the bonds of marriage and coupledom. And, you know, the only re- only other kind of family couple we see is the, the, the couple at the beginning who are buying the meat with the little girls. And they're just kind of, they're not really present. So they're not, they're not really engaged with anything other than a bit of a punchline, which is still fantastic, but it's just a punchline. And then, you know, you've got these biker groups, which are their you know, punk band, which is their own kind of alternate family. But again, they're, they're not presented because we do experience the film from the perspective of Vincent. These people are no way individuals who could build a, be the foundation of a society that would be acceptable and not, as I said from the quote before, barbaric. And so just having the brother who has kind of disconnected does have those, as I said, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the, the cop in the remake, there are those connections and it's still, it's not it, thematically and symbolically, it doesn't destroy it, but it is the piss weak version of that. <laughs> like rather than being truly independent, self-sufficient person like Vincent is, he still has to go to the government to get his power, that he still has to bind himself into traditional structures and systems, which sovereign citizen libertarian Vincent will most likely look down on and would use rather than look up to. It does add a really interesting texture to the film and that he is presented as being either inept or self-serving still continues to deny his power and his position and the structures that he has bound himself to over the family. The first, maybe the first few times that I watched this movie, it took me forever to figure out that Ida and Vincent, our brother and sister. Like, there's a line pretty early on that Bruce is Vincent's younger brother. But the way that Vincent and Ida interact, I thought for sure they were a couple. And so then bringing Terry into it, 
really kind of disrupted that couple thing. And they are a couple in a sense, but they are supposed to be brother and sister. But I always think of them as husband and wife first. But there's also, I think there's, I can't remember if they're in the film, but in the screenplay, there's bits where it's a bit, uh, there's suggestions that Ida is bisexual and is also open to Terry sexuality. And so I think there's there's a lot of elements in the film where they like, never state anything explicitly, but those boundaries are very wibbly-wobbly. The one thing that speaks to that is <laughs> that dirty magazine that's in Bruce's car that the Reverend, the Wolfman Jack character, he takes that from him. And then when we cut back to Ida, she's looking at the same magazine. It's a, you know, obviously it's a different copy of it, but she's looking at that same magazine. So to your point, she's looking at a, a quote unquote girly magazine rather than it something more heteronormative for her. So I did find that very interesting. I would like to point out 1980 was uh, was a very good year, though, for Hustler when it comes to the writing. Now, I actually rewound it to see if it was the same issue, because I was like, that would be hilarious if it's like somehow her and Bruce both have the same subscription to Hustler. That does speak, if, if it is, and I hope it is, because that does speak to them all being on the same continuum, even though they are in different <laughs> social uh, streams. <laughs> The relationship with Ida and Vincent is very fascinating because honestly, I, I like you both. Like I too was like, are they like? What's the deal? Because honestly, I didn't really get anything romantic from them. But you know, he makes the point to introduce Bruce to Terry as my little brother. He does no such introduction for Ida, and and then then at one point, I'm like, is she just like some? assistant that he somehow discovered hey you're open to killing and smoking people too for the planet cool let's have a partnership like you don't you know you're never quite sure and and her weird jealousy towards terry how yeah i mean it could be easily misinterpreted it's like well she is she afraid getting replaced either as a partner or as a business partner it's definitely kind of nebulous at times and on top of that with you know you're never really quite sure what Bo is to her either, especially when you see his birth date. He was born in, like, the 20s. <laughs> it's like, there should have been, like, a deleted scene where, like, Terry walks by, like, a like an old folks' home, and she just kind of, like, licks her lips. <laughs> and it's just like, she's like, oh, is it, is, it, is it seniors night at the Sizzler? The dichotomy between Vincent and Ida is really fantastic. That that really is that. I know in, in the commentary, Kevin Connor refers to the American Gothic painting, as being some of the inspiration for even how they look. But it's so much that, you know, when you do cinema studies and especially horror film studies, you have that dichotomy between order and objection that Vincent is a a hundred percent the order, the cleanliness, the structure, the organization, and Ida is the abject, the spilling over borders and disorder and chaos. And they each represent that so perfectly, uh, you know, even down to the, the choice of, of having someone like Rory Calhoun, who's very tall and straight and lanky and thin, and Ida, who is more voluptuous and round and shorter, that the, the way that it ties into those kind of themes is perfect. And yeah, Ida is just, her, Nancy Parsons just nails that kind of sort of malicious, sort of playful, chaotic energy of like the... You know, like a Loki-like figure, like wandering around in the background, just doing whatever comes to mind, whether it, it works out well or not. 
Can we also briefly touch upon the fact that they, at the the Farmer Vincent household, there's continually playing this loud televangelist. It's always, it seems to be at top volume, this preacher, and apparently that's the whole station in that <laughs> area. Like, there's no other programming. Yeah, Kevin Connor talks about when he first came to America that in, that in California there were quite a few stations like that that would just be broadcasting. He talks about one evangelical preacher on who had like a big tree stump and had all these like wool blank like lambs wool or whatever blankets and would sit there and just preach for hours and then he found them really hypnotic and kind of became obsessed with them and uh, yeah because i don't think there's anything like that in the screenplay it's just the it's just the reverend character yeah and so it is i kind of thought that Kevin Connor had lost it a little bit when he's saying like, oh, the guy that plays the preacher is also one of the swingers. And I was like, no, because the guy who's the preacher is Wolfman Jack. It took me a a long time to realize that there's actually two preachers and that they're both on TV. Because at first I thought we only saw Wolfman Jack outside of the TV, but no, he's on TV begging for money just like the other guy was, though maybe a little more low-key than the other guy. The other guy's very fire and brimstone, and then Wolfman Jack is just kind of like doing his thing and talking about how they're going to have to close down unless they get money. Two different styles of preaching, but that is their only TV entertainment, it seems like. Yeah, and it also ties in with the overall cannibalism thing, because, you know, eating the Eucharist, and it's a different form of cannibalism and incorporation. And this another another ideology sitting on the side uh, that you know obviously very intrinsically tied into the American ideology and that, you know that we haven't even put you know the, the the casting of Roy Calhoun is perfect on a metatextual aspect as well because he is so almost exclusively associated with the Western. And, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre ties into a lot of those Western themes of drawing out the, the, the ideas of the American frontier and, and man conquering nature and the wilderness and making it his own. Uh, it's all these kind of little, little, little themes and symbols and everything bubbling away in this film. And yeah, it, it's, it's going and reading that screenplay, you know, knowing Kevin Connor. It's, it, I feel like every single podcast I'm on, I refer to Wake and Fright, but the, that, that thing of a, an outsider coming in and making a film about a country they're not from, having an Englishman make this film is perfect because it just brings together all these little elements that when you look at them individually, you're like, this probably shouldn't work. And it just comes together. I even as I was thinking about Kevin Connor's earlier horror film from Beyond the Grave, the Amicus film. It is about a small businessman. It's an, an omnibus film that in the wraparound tale is a small businessman who sells a product that isn't as it seems. <laughs> That's the English capitalist version of Hotel Hell minus the cannibalism. So many great little elements that, and, and even like we were, we were talking about before, Heather, the, the introduction of the sheriff when he you know, peels into the parking lot because you have no idea who these characters are when you first watch it. You're thinking, Oh, you know, this is going to be some confrontation with the cops and she's sneaking around, like getting jumps on him and everything. But all these little gears, and there's so many of those little gears, like that scene and like the themes that are just spinning constantly that I've rewatched this so many times. And I don't necessarily always get something new out of it, but the pleasure in all of those parts moving together makes it extremely rewatchable. You mentioned Wake and Frighten. I 
keep thinking of another Australian film, which is The Cars That Ate Paris. When I watch this, this whole idea, especially of the traps that are going to take unsuspecting motorists and then they use them for medical experiments and steal all the stuff out of their cars and everything. I think that Vincent could have actually gone a little bit farther by utilizing the motorcycle, the truck, the van, the the actual stuff that he gets from these people instead of just using them for the meat. Even though he refers to the people that he's about to eat as animals and is very careful to always refer to them as animals or it, he treats them like plants, especially the whole thing of having the music set up to play to them at night. It's very much like what you do with plants is like playing music for them so that they can, you know, grow stronger and faster. And it's just like, it's an interesting thing that he does to them in order to uh, help them move along, help them grow a little bit more uh, as he fattens them up before the slaughter. The way that they, the film takes those little elements of like hippie new ageness and strings it into more less new age aspects is perfect because we've seen that happen in the real world of the, the death of the hippie new age and better get absorbed by capitalism and business and such. So that is perfect. <laughs> the way that he he feeds them really reminds me a lot of how um, foie gras. Honestly, he's a little more gentle about it. Like, I, oh, it's it's ghastly how they do that. But he, he does make a point of, like, being, like, you know, making sure to try and kill them in a very ethical way. It's kind of like a nice movie to be very anti-factory farming. The way that that tractor lifts up and breaks their neck and falls down is its own really unique piece of horror cinema. Like, again, watching it again was just, you get, a, like, a chill and it goes crunch and the tractor just collapses. Like, oh, oh. A very like practical approach to getting food because later on when Terry finds out the family's secret and Vincent's just kind of like perplexed he's puzzled by her being disgusted and he's like if you never cleaned a fish girl you know and that's like anybody who's had family that like you know I have some very rural relatives that literally make money farming and I mean that's just the approach to killing you're feeding your family you're you know both with food but also that's that's your living and so people like that to to have that approach like i'm totally i don't even like killing bugs so (laughs) i'm with terry on this we're both our countries are going through pretty hideous turmoil at the moment but one thing that we are having to deal with a lot having lower counts of COVID cases is so many economists and journalists and politicians saying the elderly are going to die soon anyway, so we should just, like, let the virus rip and it's fine. We've got the, – they, they just can – you know, all that cannon fodder can just be erased because they're, they're just old people. To my favorite people in the world, the seniors. I'm a senior. I know you don't know that. Nobody knows that. Maybe you don't have to tell them, but I'm a senior. We're taking care of our – Seniors, you're not vulnerable, but they like to say the vulnerable, but you're the least vulnerable. But for this one thing, you are vulnerable. And it just has that same kind of echo of being like, eh, you know, they're just, eh, it's fine. We, we've got other things that we need more than them or we need from them. None of that has a, <laughs> a ring of fantasy of it. It feels very real. Of course, what's interesting in... Um and Mike, I think you're the one that made the point of how each of the victims are people that are kind of on the outside sort of of society. But what's interesting is Vincent doesn't, there's no way he could know that. 
Like he's setting up traps because it's kind of a rural road that probably helps makes him a little bit likable. I think if he was so moralistic and like, well, I'm going to rid society of these vermin, then it'd be like, that'd be kind of another film. I think it would definitely change the tone of it quite. It just seems to be sort of a, like kind of a colorful coincidence, like, especially because the swingers, I mean, he doesn't even pick them out. They show up. By the way, the actor playing the male swinger looks like Gallagher. That's I could not unsee it. Like he looks so much like the comedian Gallagher that when he's yelling like like, you know, Edie, where's my jelly? I was just like, oh, oh. <laughs> you could not and, and anybody like I've known some I've known some swingers in real life and they do seem to nail that dynamic of like, wow, that girl's really attractive and this guy is off. There's something off about this motherfucker. Like the fish ain't swimming when they come over. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's a possible prequel where you get uh, Vincent's when he was younger and had more energy. He's more likely to do something with the vehicles. And also in his younger days may have spent more time sanitizing the populace. Whereas this is a point where they're in these older days and they've done the hard work and the only people coming through are going to be outsiders because everything in his realm is ordered as it should be. The swingers are the only ones that we see him take care of up close and personal because of the other ones being more auto-type accidents. And they paint these swingers as being so obnoxious that you feel pretty good when they're taken out. Well, and not to mention, like, there's implied that they're up for bestiality? Right. They are up for anything. Oh, my gosh. It's like, oh, you got pigs on this farm? Like, oh, my girl. I get the feeling Paul Bartel saw this and then wrote Eating Raul as, like, how expanded it to a whole film. <laughs> Swingers, cannibalism, I'm all about it. I love her little whip dance, though. <laughs> oh, she goes for it. They could have cast that actress in, like, a Sybil Danny women in prison movie. As, as like her like assistant, you know, the assistant warden. <laughs> I, uh, I saw this woman, Elaine Joyce, in so many things when I was growing up that when I finally saw this movie, I was like, oh my God, where have I seen her? And she was like guest star on The Love Boat and Fantasy Island and just, you know, so many things. And I was like, oh, I probably saw her a lot when I was growing up. So seeing her as a swinger probably would have put the zap on my head. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the picnic scene, and I can't believe I didn't mention this earlier, is the origin of Vincent, how he discovered his talent for smoking meat. He killed the granny's dog because she was annoying him. Like The dog kept barking when she was napping, so he, he cooks the dog, feeds it to his grandmother, and Bruce is, like, guffawing, going, she damn near ate the whole pooch. And meanwhile, Terry is, like, not happy because she's like, you ate a dog. <laughs> But it just made me wonder, like, did, you know, was Granny in on it? Was, you know, was did Granny, like, basically, you know, I, it, it would be kind of a fun prequel to do for this movie to just see the origins of, you know, how do you, how do you go from a French poodle to, you know, a drifter? I mean, really, so much of it is just perspective, it feels like. And it just feels like Vincent has no regard for anybody else other than his family. There's, again, a little touch in that where he mentions they were poor. Like, they couldn't afford a refrigerator, so they had to smoke. You know, you couldn't refrigerate meat or it'd go bad. And I was like, man, that's kind of, that's such a cool touch. I mean, granted, I mean, it's still, it's still Motel Hell. It's still a fun, kind of silly movie in, in the best of ways. But it's like, yeah, I mean, you think about, you, you have to survive, 
And I mean, you, you know, we've all heard about stories where, you know, somebody, you know, a plane crashes and people end up having to resort to cannibalism to survive, which is a horrible thought. At times of desperation, you know, people have to do some crazy shit. I crashed over the Andes Mountains, but I never ate a soccer player. I brought one along just in case. I remember the plane crash. We're sitting around the snow. Some guy yelled out, look, we're here. We're hungry. Let's break open the soccer player. I said, come on. You didn't even touch the pilot. Some guys don't know how to eat me. I have one jockey. That's usually it for the day. Why stuff yourself? Why stuff yourself? You know, why stuff yourself? Why stuff yourself? If I ever get around to writing my book on cannibalism in cinema, there'll be the chapter on cultural relativism will be using this film as the uh, example. Because I think more than most cannibal films, it does try to set up that perspective, uh, you know, that you can't, that you shouldn't judge someone else's behaviors, beliefs, practices, uh, you know, with outside, outside of the context of their personal lived experience. And Vincent's very much about the cultural context and relativism of who and what he eats. Especially with him being so, just so, like, not not obnoxiously moral, but, you know, it's like when Terry tries to kind of seduce him, he looks so awkward. He looks just so bashful, and he's like, I'm not doing anything like that until we're married. And, and it's funny, because in the script, it looks like he's a little more tempted and kind of staring at her breasts, where in the film, Vincent's almost like he can't even look at her. And it's, it is kind of like a cool contrast to, you know, versus Ida and Bruce, who apparently are like, ooh, I wonder who Beaver of the Month is. Roy Calhoun was a, a bit of a, a troublemaker and a party boy when he was younger. But, you know, it's hard to get a sense of that watching him in this. But I can imagine him as the, the older, traditional uh, gentleman type talking with Kevin Connor, the Englishman, and them both coming to this much more um, refined and restrained individual rather than what's presented in the in the screenplay. And oh I, I'm so glad Wolfman Jack is in this movie. His when he when he absconds with Bruce's skin rag and he just like opens it up and goes, Glory, glory <laughs> it's, it's so good. I wish we would have had a little more of Wolfman Jack in this movie, I will say. But a little bit, hey, little bit's better than nothing. Yeah, I do kind of wish that he was the preacher, the TV preacher throughout, but, you know, I guess I, I guess seeing also that the first preacher is a complete hypocrite and is, is one of the swingers. And I think that's what we're supposed to maybe figure out. I think that's appropriate too. I mean, especially with the, uh, God, I was around for the first Jerry Falwell scandal, much less now his son. Mike is mistakenly referring to Jimmy Swaggart, not Jimmy Falwell. I have sinned against you, my lord. The other preacher reminded me a lot of a character that used to be uh, on WWF in the 80s called Brother Love, who was like this wrestling manager preacher. And he's like always had like this red face because he was always yelling so much. And he just like, ah, love you. You know, he taught, oh, he was so obnoxious. And Roddy Roddy Piper knocked him out with a pumpkin one time. So we, we that's not really something that's particularly common in Australia. So I, I think the Australians in general look at that kind of stuff and go, ah, uh, cool, guys, just keep it over there. 
And TV preachers had been, as soon as technology comes about, I mean, it's usually used for porn and it's also used for religion. So when radio was out there, I don't think there are too many porn radio shows. There might be. There might be a secret history that we need to investigate. But preachers took to the airwaves. You know, Father Conklin here in Detroit had a huge following. And then when television became what it was, then, and especially with UHF channels, and then especially with cable, cable just became like such a field day for like the, was the, the 700 club. And it was just, it would be 24 seven of preachers asking for money and, and doing their thing. I mean, this was right on the precipice when it came to that. And just, yeah, you know, you get each preacher had their own shtick. So you got like, I can't remember the guy's name, Benny something with that crazy hair or the guy who was like half burned and he's doing his thing and the crazy nun and just everybody had their shtick that they were working on for this stuff. And they were almost like professional wrestlers with their own kind of way of, of, of crafting these characters and then going out and doing it. I mean, Robert Tilton with this whole speaking in tongues thing. I mean, it was just amazing. Amazing. Now I'm going to pray in tongues for a moment. Somaka sidi dala muku, manda kishiti kolora bashata, manda kalaboho masiki lomoko damasa, kadita na namoso yalama kamba sotkoya. I don't understand the words you just said. Oh God! Well, Wolfman Jack speaks in tongues. And here, which is so great. And he actually says, I was so excited. I started speaking in tongues, which that cracked me up. If, uh, I have relatives that are strict Pentecostal. So I've seen people actually speak in tongues at a church. And it is, it is a lot more terrifying than Wolfman Jack in this movie. <laughs> There's a documentary, uh, compilation piece that I've been meaning to watch all year. But as the year's gone crazier, I'm like, I don't know if I can cope with that. Uh, like a home-produced one called Perverse Preachers, Fascist Fundamentalists, and Christian Kitty Kooks. It's a two-hour compilation of clips from programs and interviews. It's like an hour and 20 minutes long, and it's apparently it's really quite remarkable and, remarkable and demented, so that could be a, a good follow-up piece if you're a, it's 3 a.m. and you've just watched Motel Hell. The poster that I was talking about, or the video box, was not the one that's used now to market it. I'm thinking of the one with Roy Calhoun and Nancy Parsons, them in the middle, and then up front, the four disembodied heads all screaming and mostly looking up and um, their mouths, you know, completely wide open. That's the one that I think of. But then now they can actually use the marketing of Vincent with the pig's head, which has to be one of the most striking visuals in this movie when he's there with his pig head on and the chainsaw. I mean, it is just such a wonderful image. Oh, it's a fantastic image. And I know there was like an issue of Fangoria that came out to promote the movie. And that was the image they use, which is crazy. Cause honestly, Fangoria, this movie isn't very, this movie is barely gory. I wouldn't even actually call it gory. There's a few kind of a little kind of grossness towards the end, but I mean, even for, you know, early eighties, which was a splatter filled era of horror, um, especially if you're going in, going over to Italy, it's not gory at all. But that image is so great, and I've always wanted to do a piece on films that use severed pig heads as imagery because there's a, a 
it, it seems to pop up a lot in cult cinema. There's a Belgian horror film called Calvaire or The Ordeal. Look up the trailer for Calvaire or The Ordeal. And that the trailer for that has it's like a real country red Belgian redneck horror film. Uh, it's a hell of a film. It is pretty fucked up. But I always remember the trailer, which has got these flashes of increasingly bizarre stuff happening. The trailer is like flashing up the words, how bad can it get? Ask the pig. <laughs> I was like, that just, even to give it out, it just shiver up my spine. Like, it's just, that's, that's horror. That is absolute perfect horror. <laughs> and this film has that same kind of thing where as soon as he belts out with that chainsaw and the pig mask, yeah, this film doesn't have to be gory. It just needs that. It escalates the horror so intensely in that one second. It's the only way to outdo Leatherface is to go, well, you know, we're going to have a whole pig's head, which you know is like, even though it's a rubber pig's head, you can just imagine the, the stink of it and the smell, the feel, and it just adds so... And boom, it more even more, you know, the 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 nice, neat, clean overalls and plaid <laughs> shirt. It just this. It's such a remarkable image of horror that I think it's it's why, like I said, that was that was the image I saw as a kid in a photo and was like, I need this film. The artwork you mentioned that's the stuff that I grew up with too, where it made it look like kind of like the the American Gothic painting, but it almost looked like one of those great. Um, actually, I think the plot of this does too, like the. You know, like one of those great sort of now like books like paperbacks from hells have kind of celebrated just that era of paperback horror in the 80s where you would have some, I mean, even some of the worst books had the most amazingly colorful artwork. It very much reminds me of that. Oh, yeah. It's, it's that's just the same cover I, I was always familiar with. You know, I've got the Arrow release with the flippable cover. So I've got the, the original cover on my desk and it just, it is that when you, it's all completely drawn, beautiful textures and colors. And yeah, it, it's like in the background, it's the, the, as I said, the Disney farm film. And in the foreground, it's what the hell is that? Well, and especially to see, you know, Vincent, who even, even when he's tending to, you know, the, the, the long pigs in the secret garden or whatever, he always has a smile on his face. He's always so gentle. And so to see him go from just sort of this lovably gentle sort of farmer to like, now he's got a, a fucking pig head. On his head and a chainsaw. It just, it just, it's like the film just went from like 50 to 150, uh, a split second. The secret face of Farmer Vincent revealed. <laughs> but I, I, one of the things I love about that ending so much is even though Kevin Connor was hired as a horror director, having only made one horror film, that ending feels like it comes more from his At the Earth's Core and The Land That Time Forgot film. It's 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 shot like a swashbuckling scene. You even have Bruce like riding on the the hooks like it's uh, like he's coming into the boat as a pirate, you know, swinging on the on the ropes. It's it's not shot like a horror scene at all. It's it's a it's a dueling match of with, with chainsaws instead of swords. And it's so it's shot like an adventure swashbuckling fight. And that really works for it because after everything that's come before, even though it doesn't fit with anything becomes before, it somehow does link it in better than if they had just tried to go, oh, now we're getting really gnarly horror at the way we're shooting this by still coming at it from an off-kilter way, just as like, oh, of course this film just suddenly turned into a swashbuckler. Well, I should have expected it. <laughs> well, and the way that Terry's trussed up and she's on this flat 
bed type of thing. And then the saw starts, the, 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 uh, carving knife. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So this is the old, we're going to take the, the maiden and put her on the, the saw belt and she's going to be cut to pieces at the mill. Oh, save me, save me. Somebody save me. Don't go all to pieces now. Wait about five seconds. It looked like Nell Fenwick's wick was about to be extinguished when the jig is up, whiplash. Dudley, the saw, pull the lever. To quote uh, Timothy Carey in uh, Beach Blanket Bingo, it's very reminiscent of the perils of Pauline. (laughs) (laughs) The whole movie ends the way that you would think it would end, with the uh, victims coming out of the grave and attacking them. But I do like their revenge on Ida and that they bury her and put her in upside down. So she kind of has like a Wicked Witch of the West, or sorry, Wicked Witch of the East type ending to her. I know with her tiny little feet, she had like for be for for you know, it's like those are her feet. Those like little children feet almost, like little little small foot Ida. That yeah, now that was kind of almost like a almost like a great pseudo zombie type scene. The way they're kind of lumbering about, which honestly, the fact that they can even move after being you know, in the ground like that for days is probably a miracle. But that's kind of a nice realistic touch because nobody's going to be moving athletically after being, you know, basically kind of like been immobile in the, in the earth for so long. Yeah, they, in the commentary, uh, Kevin Connor says that it was deliberately meant to be a Romero, an acknowledgement of Romero and Night of the Living Dead. Uh, and you definitely see the way that it's shot it looks very much like that. And I like that it's Bo that is the one that gets out you know the the very first person we see in the movie is the one who manages to escape the 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 garden the push-in on uh vincent rory calhoun as he's dying he's had the chainsaw to the side and they they pull the help mask off and again as it's you know he's not angry he knows he's dying it's very much like the rest of the his character we've seen his character that he is He's accepted his fate and he's going with it and he's talking to Bruce and Terry and the camera just from the moment they take the, the, the pig's mask off just very slowly pushes in. And it's one of those moments that if I was teaching film, I would show that to the class to be like, this is how you've gone from all of this chaos and madness to just this perfect stillness and you just want – you've got the perfect actor giving the absolute perfect performance to end his character with – and you're just letting the camera be sucked towards him. And the whole, you're almost, even though it's not a tense moment, you hold your breath as this is happening. You just like, the film grabs you and holds onto you and just hits that punchline. And it's just, and out. Perfect. The whole film could have just faded to black. It's still got a couple of great beats after that. But the whole film could just fade to black and be done there. And that is a perfect ending. Well, in the fact the country music that we keep hearing throughout the film and it ends on that, I am a huge sucker for horror movies that use country. Because I think country is actually can be a very incredibly eerie sounding, especially old country, like not the kind of pop garbage that's going on now, masquerading as country, but like old school country. And you mentioned Eaten Alive earlier, Ben, and like that film is a, a film that uses it to great effect. Of course, um, Irvin Berwick's Hitchhike to Hell has a amazing sort of old country style theme song um i just i love that i kind of would like to see more horror movies do that i think it's it's kind of a cool touch especially in this film because it's kind of contrasted with the very eerie piece of instrumental music that we kind of hear off and on throughout 
Yeah, I, I was raised on. Uh, I'm trying to remember the the musician, the Gunfighter Ballads, Marty Robbins. Yeah, that that vinyl. I don't know how Mum didn't wear that vinyl out when I was a kid. <laughs> so then that you know, there's a lot of talk of the devil and you know doomed people and all these kind of yeah, that that kind of country is perfect for this. But you got to say what what the, the the song is that's playing in the credits. The the amazing title, "You're Eating Out My Heart and Soul." <laughs> Again, the uh, the cannibalism puns uh, run free. All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up, you're going to hear from director Kevin Connor, and after that, you will hear from writer Frank Catolo, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at TwilightZone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. You guys look like... What do they look like, Jimmy? Dorks. <laughs> they look like a couple of dorks. If you're looking for dorky, geek-filled content where you can nerd out over movies, television, comic books, and so much more, then you've come to the right place. The In the Mouth of Dorkness podcast is bringing geek-related content to you three times a week. Hey, everyone. I'm the Turtle Dork here at Mod. On Mondays, we drop our Weekend Dork episode, which is a recap of sorts, where we discuss the most pertinent geek-related things we did in the previous week. Hi, I'm Wife Dork, and on Wednesdays, we drop our Homework Cast episode. Each week, the dorks take turns choosing a movie for the month's chosen dork to watch and review, like Heat, or Star Trek II, or Green Room. Howdy, I am the Mouth Dork. And finally, on everyone's favorite day of the week, we drop our Fistful Friday episode. Each Fistful episode is basically a top five list related to movies, comics, or some other geek-related topic. Because we all know at the end of the week, we need a little fist of Xander Cage. Hey, and I'm the Disco Dork. In addition to our regularly scheduled programming, we have special guests, film festival and comic convention coverage, interview episodes, and more. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, and other podcast platforms. Just search In the Mouth of Darkness or It Modcast, where we are for the promotion and progression of geek culture. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. Up first, you're going to hear from director Kevin Connor. So I am very curious as far as where you grew up at and how you decided to get into the film industry. Oh, okay, well, I was um, born um, in London, King's Cross, but brought up in the countryside a little about 30 miles odd outside uh, of uh, London in Hertfordshire, not far from Bournemouth Studios, strangely enough. And I used to, my dad used to drive me past there from time to time and, and, uh, 
That was in the days of the Knights of the Round Table. Liz Taylor, a big sort of MGM epics. MGM had a big studio there. But that was just, that didn't key me into going to the film industry. But um, when I was at school, I knew I, I wanted to, I was lucky. I, I used to film the school sports on a 9.5 camera and uh, and show it to the, <laughs> the classes for thruppance, uh, you know, <laughs> just to charge them for it. So I was always interested in films. And the thing that really sort of got me going was that just um, during the war, in the war, they built um, the Americans built a, um, a hospital for the D-Day landings because they knew that obviously it was going to be wounded and so on. So they built this uh, hospital, and I used to go down there as a as a kid and get uh, sweets and chocolate and bananas and things off the uh, the, the, the the people the the soldiers in the hospital wounded and so on. Lovely guys, and because we'd never seen sweets and chocolates and bananas and stuff like that. I mean, this didn't exist in our lives. So that uh, so dissolved over 1951 or something. The hospital fell to ruins, got overgrown brambles and nettles and stuff. And then uh, one evening, I saw a big glow of light coming from this area, uh, which is just you know half a mile away from where I lived. Big glow of light, and uh, so off I get on my bicycle with friends, and they're making a movie. They've turned this American the, the ruins of the American hospital into Auschwitz. Unbelievable. And it was absolutely amazing. And there's nothing more magical than a film set at night. I don't know why. It's just, it's just uh, you know, makes your heart beat. It's just so wonderful. Anyway, they're, uh, they're making a film called Odette. And it was about her. It was a, um, she, she was a Odette Churchill. She was a, um, a British spy that was, you know, put into um, uh, to France to, uh, you know, carry on uh, subversive things and uh, she got captured and was put in Auschwitz and this was the bit and she there she was marching into Auschwitz and they'd got you know gas chamber chimneys and you know just uh, Nazis in uniform and dogs and all these people you know trampling and tramping into the, the thing anyway, that caught my imagination and I thought this I, I, I think I'd like to do something like this it seems uh, there must be jobs in in that so so I got to a couple of years later leaving school, and I wrote to every film company in the in the uh, London Telephone Directory anything that said film or photography, and I wanted to be on camera. I thought that would be great on a crane, you know, swooping around. It looked really, you know, sort of. I don't know. It just had wonderful magic about it. And uh, eventually, I got a, a reply, and um, it was to work in the editing rooms in a documentary company up in London. So I, I I jumped at it and uh, so and once you got your foot in the door, and in those days it wasn't a very big industry, the British film industry. You know, you 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 get to know people and uh, and so on. So that's um, uh, after a long boring story. That's kind of really how it how it all start, started. But I was lucky. I knew what I wanted to do to get in the business early on. But I got in through the editing rooms and. As it turned out, it's, that's a you know that's a very good um, way way to get it to learn about movies and construction of movies and so on. Um, and you get the closer to a director and all all the rest of it. And uh, so that was a that was a stroke of good good fortune. How did that work? Did you have to be like the apprentice editor and then gradually yes. move into okay? Yeah, that's yes. I was a trainee, a film editor, and they made like. Um, 
commercial films about boat ships being launched and stuff like that. And they made a, um, a, a little feature film and so on. Then the editor I was working for, his friend ran the cutting rooms at Shepparton Studios and he called him up and said, I've got this lad here. And if there's any, anybody ever wants an assistant editor, um, give me a call. This uh, I've got a kid for you. Da-da-da. And six months later, the, the guy called up and said, oh, there's a film going at Shepparton. They want uh, an assistant editor uh, and a sounder, you know, doing soundtracks. And so off I went to Shepparton. And, uh, and that's even, you know, you're in a studio now. And, of course, you get to meet a lot more technicians and uh, and, and uh, deal, deal with uh, a different world as to working up in Soho. In, um, so, you you know, you're on the ladder. <laughs> that's, that's the main well, what were some of those early films like for you as far as when once you made it to the, the Shepparton Studios? The set for Oliver was still standing there in the, in the studio ground. The industry wasn't very busy then. This is the early 50s, 54 or something like that, 53, 54. They were making a thing called the Cockleshell Heroes, Footsteps in the Fog, I think with James, uh, um, Gene Simmons. So it was just, you know... But of course, you know, I couldn't get on the sets because you're not allowed to go on the stages and so on. It's, you don't do that. But uh, you could walk around these fabulous, uh, the uh, the Oliver set, the London set was still standing. It was a bit dilapidated. But uh, again, you know, you're stepping into this this world. It's, uh, it was really, really, uh, it was a thrill. I must say. And then I think I got a call. I got a job at Pinewood Studios, and there's only like three or four major studios in those days, uh, Pinewood, Shepparton, um, uh, ABPC, and then the, the MGM at uh, in Borehamwood, which they sold eventually, which was a tragedy. And there was the Twickenham Studios, and there were some minor studios, but the, you know the big big studios. You know that that was the circuit, as it were. In those days, you 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 met everybody for for a tea break at you know ten thirty eleven. You all sat round in the canteen, and all the editing people all around, all the catacombs, all sitting around in a big circle and chatting and back and forth. And but nowadays, of course, everybody's got a, a darkened room with with a coffee pot, and there's no nobody communicates or circulates. Circulates, you know. There's no give and take and, and or, or chat, you know, just about the business. Um, anyway, that, that was those days and it, nothing stays the same. You got, you had your ear to the ground where the jobs were and what films were being made. And, and you also, when you got to Pinewood, it was a, that was even more open. You could, you went to the bar and you went, you in the, there was a restaurant and you actually, you know, across the table is, you know, Dick Lester and, and Tony Richardson, people like that, you know, Carol Rice that you could rub shoulders with, so to speak. And they were, they were within, you know, you could actually go up and talk to them if you wanted to and stuff like that. It just doesn't exist anymore, that kind of atmosphere, sadly. How did you make that transition from editing to uh, directing? I got, I got a break editing thanks to Dickie Attenborough, Richard Attenborough, and he um, gave me my break editing a, a, a big musical called Oh, What a Lovely War. It was his film as a director and um, producer. And uh, he, he, I'd worked on a picture with him as an assistant editor called Seance on a Wet Afternoon. But I was just assistant in the editing. And uh, anyway, we, we, we got on and, and 
quite well. Lo and behold, about, I don't know, six months, a year later, I can't remember now, I was a Twickenham doing the soundtrack of The Charge of the Light Brigade for Tony Richardson. Phone rings, and it's uh, Dickie Amber on the phone saying, Danny, I'd like you to edit my film. Oh, but Dickie, I've never edited. Don't worry, I want, I'd like you to do it. And he came over, because he lived in Richmond, which is near Twickenham Studios. He came over, and in the cutting room, he went through the whole script, singing and dancing the songs. I mean, not dancing, you know, but I mean, you know, and not the whole song, but giving, just talking about the whole script. And he hadn't got the script in front of him. I mean, it was all clear. Uh, but he thought, for me, there was a lot of opposition because it was a big musical, and I never edited, let alone edit a musical. So I edited five or six more films, and then I just found that, you know, it wasn't enough. I wanted to kind of get into producing, perhaps. It never occurred to me to, to direct, because, you know, that's a, wow, you just, it just never crosses your mind. I optioned 12 shorts, 12 short stories from a book called Chapman Hayes. I can't remember the name of the title now. Anyway, it was, a, you know, mystery stories, ghost stories, horror stories, and so on, the collection that, that, that Chetwin had written. I optioned them all. To, the idea was to make 12 half-hour um, stories, uh, screenplays for a television series. And they were all modern stories. So they, it wasn't like they would be that expensive because they were, they were modern. I optioned them, and with two friends, we wrote four each. And then I shopped them around. Nobody wanted to know about them. No, they would never work as a TV series and, uh, and so on and so forth. But eventually they landed on the desk of Milton Sabotsky of Amicus Films. Anyway, I got a call from him and uh, with my agent, we went along and he said, uh, I love these stories. I'm going to take four of them and make them into a compilation type film, which was sort of the thing they did in that, at that moment in time. You're getting four short stories and putting them together with a link story and so on. He said, and I'll, I'll write the link story and uh, I'll pick four stories and you can direct. And I said, never directed before. Oh, don't worry. He said, I'll surround you by uh, with very good technicians, uh, some of the best. And, um, and I've always found that editors make good directors in as much as they, they know how to cover a scene and uh, so on and so forth and whatever. And uh, he did. He gave me my break and uh, that's how... My first film was From Beyond the Grave, um, and a fantastic cast. Again, this was early 70s, so 1973. wasn't much work around, and I got phenomenal actors. David Warner, Maggie Layton, uh, and uh, Leslie Ann Down, and, uh, I mean, Donald Pleasance and Angela Pleasance, and uh, uh, I can go on. I mean, and, uh, really wonderful. So I was very lucky. And I got the cameraman he gave, I got, he gave was, uh, Alan Hume, who, who's, uh, you know, done Bond films and superb cameraman and a wonderful guy. And, um, the technicians, the art director, really because we're very lucky because at that time there <laughs> was a lot of un unemployment and, um, you know, you could get the good people for, for the right price for those sort of movies, you know. So it was, yeah, it was, it was, a. Uh, it was I, so that yeah, that's how that came about. Thanks to Milton Sabotsky. Was it a given that you were going to do both of the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs films, or did it depend on one being successful for the next one to get made? Um, not, I don't think so. I mean, we got on Milton. They they loved uh, uh, from Beyond the Grave, so they said, "Oh, would I like to do um, 
land that I forgot? And I said, yeah, sure, yeah. And uh, so that came about, and we did that, and it was uh, successful. And but there was a bit of a gap, and I went off and I did another film. I think it was called A Dirty Night's Work or something. What happened then? Uh, then the, the, yes, I think it was all in the works, but it was at the Earth's core, the next one. So that came about. But, you know, there's, there was a, it was uh, standby as soon as we got the money together. You no, know, we want you to do it. Uh, but uh, land was su- uh, successful. I mean, it didn't cost very much because uh, you know, <laughs> the, the effects are a bit creaky now. They stand up pretty well, given the technology at the time. You know, there was no CGI as such and so on and so forth. It was all model- models and hand puppets and, you know, it was... Uh, Again, I was lucky. I had Derek Meddings as a special effects guy, you know, one of the top guys. I mean, I was really, really lucky to um, be surrounded by good technicians. I forgot that you also did the people that time forgot. And then, yes, and after after uh, at the Earth score came people that time forgot, and that was we only did. I think we only did three uh, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs because we wanted to do the, the John Carter series. But they, they were very expensive. The sort of budgets that uh, Amicus had weren't, weren't uh, you know, didn't have, they didn't have a lot of money, and they, they, the estate wanted quite a big fee for the for the rights. So we decided to write our own uh, sort of adventure story and mystery story, and uh, we did um, uh, Warlords of Atlantis, I think it was called. Uh, yeah, and then um, Arabian Adventure, and then. Um, I decided to have a go at Hollywood in 1980. I decided I'd better have a go at Hollywood because because it's there. But then if I fail, I fail. If uh, at least I've had a go, you know, you, you kind of you, you you have to have a go at it. And I got I got lucky, kind of sidetracked into television really more than than feature films. But uh, um, but my first film in America was um, uh, Motel Hell. Which which was a stroke of uh, luck again. It all seems to be luck in this business, you know, being at the right place at the, at the right time. You worked quite a few times with Peter Cushing and Doug McClure, and I'm very curious how it was to work with those gentlemen. But I first worked with Peter Cushing on the uh, the uh, Tales from the Only Grave. Uh, he was he owned the shop between the, the sort of the four stories, and he was the link. He became, and he was, of course, he was a legend then from all the Hammer movies and so on. But um, I mean, what a, what a, and he, he was the English gentleman. It really, uh, he was so um, kind. It was my first movie, you know, and you, you, you know, dealing with actors. And Peter's background is, is, goes way before uh, Hammer. I mean, he, he, he was making films with Laurence Olivier and, uh, Shakespeare and on the stage. I mean, he was, you know, a really accomplished actor. So, you know, you weren't dealing with, you know, just a guy who worked on horror films. So he, he was, you know, a superb artist anyway. He knew he had been brought so much to the part and little things that he would like, you know, suggest. And, but he was very, asked me very politely. He never, he never just did it, you know, without telling me. He would always run it by me and so on. A very gentle man and um, just a, a delight. It made you know he really made my life uh, on the on a on a first time movie, you know, very welcome and very at ease. Uh, I must say, you no, know, he, he was a delight. Yeah, then I did a couple more with him. Um, 
uh, again each time absolute uh, pleasure delight to to work to work with never a moment some uh, you know um, arguing or whatever you know um always word perfect comes with ideas and, and good ideas and so on doug is doug he's a um, he was a great um, american image you know he's a, he's a handsome six foot three or whatever he was and you know really a tough guy and so it's a different dealing with an american actor of his background of westerns and and Football stuff or whatever, uh, it was, it was slightly different, but he had a, his techniques were very, you know, they really opened my eyes because he really, really knew where the camera was. So whenever you had a fight or a, you know, whatever scene, uh, he knew exactly how to position himself, where to be, where to find the light, and boom, boom, boom. It was, it was almost automatic because he'd done so many of his TV shows and so forth. Not that the English actors didn't know those techniques, they 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 weren't so broad about it. You know what I mean? They 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 could find light and so on. But he was just you know he was he was quite energetic and always on the move and stuff. So that was that was a, a different experience. But again, I never had any trouble with him. He was always a delight and uh, just just a lot of a lot of a lot of fun to to be around. And we did. Um, what we, yeah, we did two or, two or three movies, and then I did one in Japan with him, and then sadly he he passed away several years ago. Now he was a character, that's for sure. <laughs> a different, that's a little different from your average uh, British film. The chemistry between he and Peter Cushing on, especially at Earth's core, it is so great to watch those two together. Um, I think he he realised Doug is no fool, and he realised that Peter Cushing is a uh, as a class act, and so he didn't try and dominate. He didn't try and uh, uh, he, you know he, he played off him rather than tried to play over him or make us stand. Because sometimes when you get that kind of combination, you can get you can get into trouble with an imbalance of uh, the the comedy or the how they play off at each other but uh, they they worked very well together and um, Peter and Doug was in awe of Peter they they worked out a lot of business together and it was good how was that experience for you moving from editing to directing and having to deal with actors it is a bit nerve-wracking because i'd never never directed in a stage or anything like that or whatever but, you know, when you're an editor or even when you're an assistant editor, you're on the floor. You go on the floor all the time to talk to the director or the continuity girl or whatever. So you're around the technicians and art department of people. They become, you know, the family of the film. And, you know, I did a lot of films. And so I was quite at home on a film set in terms of talking to technicians and so on. And then... When you became a sound editor, or a lot of the time you had to do the ADR on a film because the director either couldn't be bothered to turn up or he was busy or whatever. Um, so you you had to d- direct the ADR, you know, the revoice on on the film. Again, I was talking to actors and, but no, you know, not obviously directing, directing uh, as such. But you know, I'd, I'd uh, watched a lot of films and. And in, in, in my first film, I got really, really good actors were cast, like David Warner, Peter Cushing, 
Maggie Layton and Donald Pleasance. I mean, they were classy actors. So I was lucky, as Clint Eastwood says, get good actors because they bring their craft to the film and that's what they're meant to do. Anybody who works on a film should bring their craft to it. Sound, and production designer, anybody, you know, they should all, they have their piece of the jigsaw. So I was lucky when I, that first film, I had such wonderful people all happy to be working, of course, and um, and then they were fun stories. So it was, it wasn't a you know heavy. It wasn't Shakespeare. It wasn't a, a you know tough stuff to do in terms of uh, a lot of deep, deep soul searching. You know. Uh, so uh, yeah, I was uh, I was lucky with the with, with the, all the actors I had, really really good ones. So that's that's the key a lot of the time is to get yourself good actors. So I always felt comfortable on the set, <clears throat> and I, I I knew a lot of the camera crew and and people like that. When I was an editor, I knew they'd, they'd, the operator I had, for instance, had been on several films that I've been the editor on. So you know they weren't strangers to me. So I was really lucky in that uh, respect. You said that it was the right place at the right time for Motel Hell, and I'm curious how that uh, unfolded. I uh, arrived in in L.A. not a lot of money, and with only two contacts, and one of them was an agent called Bobby Litton. So I went along to Bobby Litton after about a, a month. I had got my reel together. Uh, and in those days, it was, you know, off a VHS, and it was pretty gotty, bad, you know, quality. So I went to him, and I gave him my reel. Yes, okay, okay, because we, we had a sort of mutual friend, and that was it. And weeks go by, and I think it must have been, I don't know, three weeks later, I called up, and the secretary answered, and I said, oh, I'm coming, I'm going to come and pick up my tape. From she, Oh, yes, it'll be on the desk, don't worry, don't worry. Um, so off I go, and down to into Beverly Hills and get up. As I walk in the door, Bobby Littman's door opens and out he comes with his coffee cup wanting to get a, you know, a refill. Oh, Kevin, yes, yes. Um, what are you doing? What's, what's happening? I said, nothing. He said, come in here. I'm going to get you a job. So I go in. He gets me a coffee and I sit down. He picks up the phone. He calls uh, an, uh, an agent. And he said, I, I've got this young man in front of me, and uh, uh, have you got any um, any uh, jobs coming up for a director? And this agent, uh, her name was Joanne Kincaid, she said, oh, we're looking for a young uh, director to do a horror film. Uh, um, has he done a horror film? And I you know, said, yeah, thumbs up. Yes, I've done one. And so on and so forth. So I got a meeting with her. So I'd, <laughs> I'd lugged a copy of, uh, in those days, it was in 35 mil, I had to go, find a copy of the film because I mean, you couldn't get them on DVDs or you know VCRs anymore in those days so I had to go to the distributor in a in a vault somewhere out in Chatsworth or someplace and carry it in the pouring rain up to UA you know FGM and run it there and anyway they liked the film there's two boys who'd, who'd written the script um, Robert and Charles Jappy and they'd written the script their father was an executive at UA so they had a good in there and anyway, they liked the film, gave me the script to read, and so off I go, read the script, and opening page, fade-in long shot, motel hell, night, cut interior, motel room, fat lady is in bed with a pig and a dildo. 
and I put I put this down, and I said to to my Joe, my friend, and said, uh, um, "I've come all this way to Hollywood to do this kind of crap. Not what I want to do." She said, well, "I think you better read it because we haven't got much money left." And anyway, so I read it, and it it, it was it had a you know obviously there was something in there, but it was it had stupid stuff in it. This childish, you know, I don't know, teenage, really sort of. So I went back with the, to the boys and had a long chat and uh, talked about the script. And I said, if, if we can take out all that really juvenile stuff and make it a dark comedy, it's it's tongue in cheek, but nobody, you don't act it or shoot it like a tongue in cheek. But that's what it is. And you're not taking the Mickey out of the genre. It's just it's dark and you play it straight and you just keep that. Away and then just make it some funnier things in it. And you know, we worked on the script, and they came up the film that you see today. Uh, anyway, that's that's how that came. So, if I hadn't walked in the door into Bobby Lippman's office at that moment, and he coming out at that moment, our pals, if I'd been two minutes later or two minutes earlier, you know, it would never, I'd never, it would never have happened that moment when he picked up the phone. How are the Jaffies to work with? And having their father as one of the executive producers, did that cause any sort of friction? Or Herb Jaffe, I mean, he'd done some classy films for you. They they made they only made classy films, and of course, the horror genre was not really in their library, so to speak. But uh, you know, he 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 got them the break, or they gave them the blessing, or found the money, or whatever, to come up with something, and they written this script, obtained this script or written written it, and uh, they hadn't produced anything before, but they were very smart and they'd obviously been around and they were a lot, they, I mean, they had a, a, a very experienced, uh, it would be a, a UPM or a, or a line producer, they call them these, Austin Jewell, uh, who was a really wonderful guy. And he, he, he had, Austin Jewell was one of the boys Playing, um, watching Charlie Chaplin when he's, I forget the name of the film, Chaplin is, uh, looking into a shop and these two boys are playing around, around him. He was one of those kids, Austin Jewell, just to show how far back he's. And his mum was, uh, the, the continuity girl on a lot of Chaplin films. Uh, anyway, so, but just so, you know, they had some experienced hands behind them running the sort of business side of it and so on. And again, they got me a, a great crew of first AD, cameraman Tom Del Roos, really good people, production designers, and again a, a, a great cast. Uh, and it worked out, it worked out very well indeed. But the, we never had any friction. We all the casting went smoothly. They're such fun to, to shoot uh, the, this, this genre. I don't because you can sort of do crazy things. You know, you don't have to always stick to what's written in the script. And then, no, it was a a very good relationship. After Motel Hell, um, I bought them a book called um, Harry Harrison. Uh, It'll come to me. Anyway, and uh, we we got an option on it, and we wrote a screenplay between us and so on. It was was a space, you know, it was a science fiction thing and somewhat expensive, so we couldn't... uh, uh, UA d- didn't buy it, and of course they were about to. I think they were getting into Heaven's Gate, and that whole um, malarkey, unfortunately. Yeah. So anyway, anyway, that's uh, by the by. 
Yeah, never, no, no friction at all. We all, we all worked very well together, all down the line. Yeah, I love the look of the film. It just has this wholesome, the bright colors. Just everything is is so vivid in the film. It just try to keep as natural as possible. Not, not um, you know, obviously these sort of slightly spooky moments. You you make them, but it's it's um, it's just that Nancy Parsons and, and Rory Calhoun was so enjoyed what they did. It's also a matter of fact, you know, plucking them <laughs> their, their victims out of the ground with their tractor and or drilling the hole or whatever they were doing. The way they they, they carried it off, it was just perfect for for what I was I was trying to do. But it's the contrast again, you know, always try and always cut from something bright to something dark or something horrible to something good. Uh, you know, you always do a contrasting cuts. So, you, in fact, you never really see any gore or any blood or anything in, in Motel Hell. You never see any throats being cut. Um, you see the knife go up and then you, you cut to an image that's totally the opposite and with a flurry of birds or, or whatever, um, just to, to take away the, I, I you know, I just, I don't think you need to see, um, blood and gore quite. I think it's, it's kind of easy to do that stuff. It's far more inventive to try and scare people with what they think they've seen. You know, there's, there's, there's enough horror and stuff going on in this world without adding to it. Yeah, your four main leads, they do seem to be having such a good time. And I just love watching Roy Calhoun. He is so fun. Yeah, he is. And he was absolute, again, absolute delight. And, uh, you know, because he was a wild boy in his day. He was, you know, he'd spent time in jail and uh, I don't know what he, he was always into fights and uh, drunken driving. I don't know, all sorts of stuff. So I thought, oh my God, I'm going to get this wild character and he was just, you know, I mean, obviously those days are all behind him. And he was happily married and he had a lovely daughter. Um, and goodness, so she's got to be, I think she was 12 at the time. So she's got to be 50 or something now. 40 years ago. Yeah, 40, this April, 40 years ago. That's close to show. They just carried it off. And you, and you sort of got swept along with them, believing them that these, these, these people could do this without any, uh, and then, and they only really sort of bumped off people who were a pain in the neck. They didn't, uh, you know, it was the, I think the end of a sort of sequence of those kind of horror films that the genre wasn't, I mean, you'd had, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was probably pretty brutal. Um, and that was the beginning of a new arc of, you know, violent genre films, and I think Motel Hell was the end of a, a, a shall we say, a general genre of uh, horror films. Looking back, that's there was a, a melding there. The, the really violent stuff came in after that. It feels like there are shades of Texas Chainsaw in there, but it's interesting that you predated something like Eating Raul, where it was kind of the same idea, like taking the annoying people of the world, the swingers, the bikers, the loud rock and rollers, and uh, feeding on them. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, at least they have, they have some use. It doesn't all go to waste, I guess. I hasten to say, not bikers in general, uh, but but there's a certain type of uh, person that uh, really we, we can, you know, needs to be put down. What were some of your favorite memories of making that movie? Uh, it was a, a it was great, a good break. 
career-wise, you know, I'd got a little, little, little foothold in a in a film, and it, you know, it was like uh, money was running out. So, and so within three months, I was lucky, you know, to have got such a, you know, a project like that. It, you know, it was it, like I'm trying to think, uh, and I had the two, two girls from the Playboy the girls that were driving the Cadillac. They were they were good fun. Generally. Just a, every day it was a lot of fun to go to work and, and, and to make it and all the actors I had. Um, you know, I, I enjoy it all so much that I, hopefully a bit of that transfers to the actors and they enjoy it as well. You know, it'd be so the, 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 the whole family, as it were, it, it joins in. We didn't have any accidents. We didn't have any dramas. We didn't have any, you know, I try and work everything out beforehand so there's nothing. Things like that won't happen. I mean, things do, but you know, you can plan it so that it's all done safely and so on. But um, I can't. Uh, when you say enjoyable, the whole thing is enjoyable. <laughs> Enjoy going to work every day. It's uh, you know, it's always enjoyable when certain things work as well. You know, certain gags. I mean, I the the, the it was a good fun doing the. Um, the, the, in the swimming, when they were swimming in the in the rubber tires, you know, and, and Nancy punctures the girl's uh, her her tire and tries to drown her and so on. That was freezing cold at that them uh, anyway, not for me. I get asked which was you know my favourite or the funniest, but every day is a lot of fun. So it, it's a uh, I tell you the uh, shooting in that. Um, in the pig house, in the in the where, where the the smokehouse, as it were, those pigs' heads and sides sides of the pigs, they were real. After two or three days in there doing that fight sequence, it does palm a bit, and, and uh, oh, it, it does. It doesn't take long uh, you know, because you know, they were they weren't put in a freezer; they were all kept left hanging up and so on. By the last day, we, we were glad to get out of there. Uh, yeah. Was there much ad-libbing or, or improvisation? No, no. They pretty, I can't recall any. You know, one of these days I should run this, sit down with a script and, and watch the film, so to speak, you know, and compare. But I'd, no, we were pretty close to the script. And I, I don't mind ad-libbing. I'm not a, fa- a fan of whole scenes being ad-libbed because, it, I don't know, you can always tell. It's, it's not, the structure isn't right somehow. But uh, no, no, I, I would say 90, 95% was as per the script. I mean, uh, Nancy and, and a lot of the actors, I mean, they, they, they come up with ideas and lines, the odd line, or adding a little bit here, there, and thinking of a joke, which we might have thrown in just to see, and it might have got cut out, it might have stayed in. I can't remember. It just all becomes, you know, part of the day's work. But no, I, I, I would say, you know, most ninety-five percent. It was the original, the, the the shooting script. Where did Wolfman Jack fit into this? I mean, I because I didn't know who Wolfman Jack was. I mean, until somebody explained it to me. But uh, I don't know how they how it came about. But um, they said, "Oh, we got Wolfman Jack. He wants to play uh, um, a cameo in the film, and uh, you know, he'd be great because uh, he's got a great following, and, and so on and so forth." And I said, "Fine, okay, that's, that's all right." He's a, he's a great character, and so on. And he was meant to be part of the title sequence. He was the pastor, uh, you know, uh, in the church. 
think was the title. Anyway, he was, he was, I think it was the beginning of the film. It didn't really work out, so there's not much of him in the film. There's a, there's a little bit of the film in the film, but not, not as much as, uh, I think they'd hope, but, uh, but it, he was meant to, he was meant to be a cameo, uh, basically. That was the idea because of his, his, uh, following. But you know, the, the, the things like, uh, the preacher in the in the in the chair with the cheap skin and uh, that guy shouting and who was always on television ranting. I'd seen that guy when I first came here. I was watching American television, and that guy was always on TV. I forget his name now, but he was quite famous. Always had a, a blackboard with a lot of writing on it and squiggles and so on. And he sat in this big chair and you know ranted and raved about the Bible and all this kind of stuff. So I thought that he'd be good just to have on the television, just in the background, you know. And but in fact, he turns out to be the guy that comes along to do the uh, the S and M in the uh, motel room. I don't know if anybody ever got that. It was that meant to be the pastor uh, that um, the same guy that was on television was the guy that uh, also ended up in the ground. And I think at that time they were doing a lot of um, American TV in the, in the early eighties when when I first got here. 1980, um, women, self-defense, karate and stuff like that. And, you know, they used to have programs about it. So I put a bit, uh, I, you know, devised some of that to be on television in the background. And, you know, if you see it, you see it. If you don't, you know, you don't. But it was just a part of the culture uh, at the time, uh, I, I recall. As, so, but that was written into the script. You know, I had it put in before we started shooting. It wasn't didn't invent it on the night, sort of thing, sort of speak. How was the film received when it came out? It's so-so. It didn't, uh, unfortunately, it didn't, didn't do as well as uh, we'd, we'd all hoped. As I say, I think it was on the end of a genre, you know. The, the more violent uh, horror films are coming in or a different, um, I don't know, a different caliber or people wanted different stuff. It, it did all right, but it didn't. Uh, it, 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 covered, it covered its costs because I still get a residual now and then, I must say. But I don't. It didn't. Unfortunately, didn't. Um, you know, it didn't. Uh, it, it, it didn't create a sensation. The box of, but uh, unfortunately, but uh, who knows why? If, if we knew the secret, then every film would be a success. When did you realize that it had life outside of what was at the theater? Actually, it was quite a few years later. I started getting phone calls or emails, or um, I, one night I, I started doing um, uh, you know a lot of television series like Heart to Heart and Moonlighting and things like that. And uh, one day I was directing um, uh, Heart to Heart, and the camera assistant, you know, the first day, and then there was a clapperboard director. He said, "This this young kid said, did you direct Motel Hill?" I said, yeah, yeah, I did actually, yeah. And uh, he said, we studied that at film school, he said. <laughs> I said, you've got to be joking. You know, it was like, I don't know, five years later or something, you know. And then I had a couple of calls about, did I have any uh, of the props that were used in the film, like the jerky sticks, you know, or the stuff that was on the counter in the uh, in the motel? Uh, did I have any of those, you know, would I sell any of you know, if I had them, would I, would I sell them? And, you know, that, then I sort of, well, my goodness, there was this interest in, in bits and bobs off a film set. 
God, if only I'd known. Uh, I, would, I could have kept all a lot of that stuff from the, the land that time forgotten people and what a well one or two bits, but nothing. You know, I, I should have kept it. Uh, it and it's a big business now, isn't it? As you know, I mean, it's uh, it's amazing. I, I keep getting requests for uh, you know interviews and uh, and, and videos and and uh, you know, video interviews and this thing tonight at uh, Scream Fest. Um, showing it at uh, in, in Hollywood, yeah. So, uh, but it was about five or six years after it made the film. But it was uh, somebody was studying it at film school. How does that feel when you hear someone studying your film in a film class? Oh, well, I, I can't believe it. Really, I, you know, it's, when you make a movie, you don't think, oh, you know, you always set out hoping thinking that you're going to make the best movie possible and, and so on and so forth and things get in the way and sometimes it goes off in a different direction and you're out of your control or whatever happens um no it just uh it was it was a laugh really i mean uh, and uh and i really it, you know it was a it's a little horror film it wasn't big actors or big writers it wasn't a you know it wasn't a a big time production and so on, just a little little movie that uh, you know, we made, and uh, yeah, no, but it was, you know, you feel a bit uh, quite chuffed, quite quite pleased, you know, in, in a funny sort of way, you know. But still, it still gets shown, and uh, I get a, I get a, the odd twenty dollar check now and then for it. So yeah, it's still 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 uh, surprising, I must say. What was your experience like working on Moonlighting? Because I, I know that it got difficult after a while, and I don't know when you managed to uh, do your episode. Oh, Moonlighting, I just I did like the number three or four or something. And, and then I got offered um, a big miniseries in Africa, Master of the Game. Um, and so I went off to do that. So I didn't do, uh, didn't do any more um, Moonlighting. Uh, so at that stage... You know, everything was tickety boo. Everybody was happy and uh, and so on. But I did. Yes, I heard the stories that later it became somewhat of a nightmare. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a, it was, it was a strange because they, you know, I got on but well with both of Bruce and uh, Sybil. But that was early days, and everybody's you know happy and gung ho and and so on. But I I don't know what happened. Really, who knows? It's a shame. What are you working on these days? As I'm now in my early 80s, I'm, life is uh, uh, directing is slowing down somewhat because you know you're you're meant to be you're, you're too old to direct, but I, I don't think I am anyway. <clears throat> no, but I, I'm developing stuff, writing stuff, adapting, trying to get things going. The usual story that all directors nobody wants to stop uh, doing, but mainly. Um, writing and trying to develop a series, you know, just keep keeping in the game because I think if you stop trying and your brain just addles or, and uh, I'm not, I'm not ready to walk away uh, just yet. I mean, I probably will have to and uh, re retire into the countryside or something, but at the moment I'm still uh, working on projects and uh, project I've had for a long time called um, Connemara Days is about, uh, it's set around the making of The Quiet Man one of my favorite films um, back in the 1950 when it was made. And about two kids that were extras in the film. It's about the life in the village where the film was made and these two kids. This is a writer friend of mine who, who wrote the screenplay 
created it around you know when you watch the film there's two two kids in, in standing in the in the crowd and he 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 decided to take them out and make a wrap a story around them and you know you but you got John Wayne and uh, Maureen O'Hara and uh, all all the, the the characters are in the film it's not a remake it's just from there the kids point of view you know you got all in it and you got all the cameras it's a very charming romantic comedy uh, set in that period well, Mr. Connor, thank you so much for your time. This was a real pleasure talking with you. Well, I hope I, hope I didn't gabble on too much. All right, up next, you're going to hear from writer Frank Cotolo, who talks about his relationship working with Wolfman Jack. He does talk a little bit about a cut scene from the film, of which there is proof in a lobby card. And looking at the outfits that Roy Calhoun and Nancy Parsons are wearing, I think that this might not have been a wedding scene, like we are talking about in this interview. It looks like this takes place probably right before the picnic lunch that they have. It looks like Rory and Nancy are wearing the same Sunday go-to-meeting clothes that they have in that. So let's go ahead and roll that interview. How did you and Wolfman Jack meet? Well, believe it or not, an ad and the Hollywood Reporter, which did not mention his name. It was a calling for a uh, comedy writer and it said something like, uh, acquainted with radio humor. <laughs> radio. <laughs> right. I answered the ad, but so did hundreds of people, you know, as I found out. There were two people who got called back. I was one of them. And the other person, we both went to a couple of sessions and brought some jokes. And that's how I met him. Then I came, they said, they told us to come back. And uh, we came back. He was recording a, a local, he did a number of syndicated shows at that time. And they asked me to come back. And then one week I came back, it was like three weeks, the third week I came back. And I said, well, where's uh, whatever his name was, Cliff, uh, you know, whatever. The guy who came in the Mercedes, <laughs> the guy came in the Mercedes. I was in, I was in a, um, a rent-a-wreck. They used to have these cars in California. Rent Bundy, that was it, Bundy's rent-a-wreck. So I said, well, where's he? And they said, well, uh, I guess he's out looking for a job because you got the spot and that began that was 1978 and that began uh, a long and uh, adventurous relationship i did a lot of things with wolf i mean i wrote his radio shows i did a lot of other things i was with him and helped him out a lot of his live gigs so we traveled together here and there and also uh, whenever he went to uh, you know do a tv show did a lot of tv shows he of course he did the midnight special uh, he's a, you know, like any other, uh, celebrity, he always had to have somebody with him. Uh, you know, um, I don't know what those people are called, but I've met a hundred of them. And, uh, so I went with him and he liked me going with him because we had a good relationship also because I was, uh, you know, it was like a comedy doctor. You know, he could go with a number of people who, and he did travel with a number of different people, uh, to various gigs and stuff. But, you know, with me, he could always say, like, hey, listen, give me something to say, you know, or whatever. And I was so we uh, I got along with that. And when it came to movies and TV, and this is one of the reasons I'm real happy to talk about this. Um, I think I don't think I know 
that uh, he was a really a good actor. And we did a lot of stuff together, but, and I ran lines with him and did all sorts of stuff. We really worked at it. But he had a stigma. The stigma was, hey, you're Wolfman Jack. We made fun of that a lot on the uh, syndicated show and live shows and stuff, you know, because he was Wolfman Jack. Who else could he be? And this movie, of course, he played someone else, but we'll get to that. But anyway, that's how I did and what I did. So I kind of became a, I don't know what, I don't know what to call me. I was, you know, with him a lot on live gigs, TV shows, um, midnight special, pretty much, you know, all the time from the time I came and, um, all sorts of other personal appearances from here to gosh, uh, you know, England, France, everywhere. How did that work with the radio show? Did I mean, I imagine you wrote a lot of it, but then when he's dealing with callers and things like that, are you like in the studio giving notes or something? The main Graffiti Gold show was done on uh, tape. You know, we could do like four shows ahead of time, be four weeks ahead, and then run off on the road. But we were also, at one point, we were doing a number of shows syndicated. He had the AFRTS, which is the uh, military you know, a government military station that goes out to, uh, you know, troops and people working for the government in other places. So we had that. That was like one hour a day for five days a week. So that was five hours. We did the Graffiti Gold Show, which was six hours. At one point, we did a, um, when it really, when uh, we had a pretty successful Wolfman Jack disco show. <laughs> we actually had a disco show when that got really hot. That was, I don't think it was two hours a week. So like in one week, we would do an awful lot. And if we had to go on the road, you know, whether it was me with him or someone else, uh, we had to do those things ahead of time. So we had, you know, we had to uh, be caught up. It was kind of hairy, but we were all younger. It got to a point where he was, uh, you know, dependent upon me. I'd go over the house sometimes. I I mean, I, we were over the house a lot. We did a lot of the live Mexican radio station uh, extra xtra which uh, we did that uh at his house they built a studio in his house so that we could um do the show there live daily that was a daily show this is why we're doing everything else we're doing that we also did krla live uh that was uh that was an incredible show we we started on uh, weeknights at uh i think we started at nine yeah we weeknights at nine to two and then you know next day we came in and uh, did <laughs> syndicated radio. It was madness. It was true madness. I don't know uh, about keeping a station like that. And eventually I was the only writer. So I was, you know, carrying just about everything, including, you know, he'd get calls. He became very dependent. I said, you know, he would call me up and say, listen, you know, someone died, uh, you know, a rock star. And of course, you know, he'd be called and, you know, we had to do all those promotional things. He said, so uh, tell me what to say. I mean, he knew some of these people, but I had to say. So we, you know, it was it was just every aspect of his life where he had to say something. I also wrote introductions to books that had say Wolfman Jack. He didn't write the introductions. Magazines would call and say, do an article for us on the cars of American graffiti. And he'd just go, hey, Mars. He called me Mars. He'd say, hey, Mars, here. I do this. <laughs> So I was I was I was very busy. It was it was hard to do any any personal writing I wanted to do, but 
I mean, I remember how present he was, especially right around this time, right as you're getting this gig, showing up in Galactica 1980. And yes, yeah, I did that. Yes, Battlestar Galactica. I remember we did that. It was a two-part series. It was two parts. Glenn Larson was the producer and the guy who created it, and he wrote this special script, two hours, that centered around Wolf. So, yes, we were, we did that. Now, that's one of the ones where you know, we were in a trailer, we had locations, and we went here and we went there, and you know, we ran lines together and tried things out because we had, we had a little creative freedom. And that's one of the play times uh, that, you know, when I realized, hey, you know, you can really act. And I knew a little bit about acting here and there, and I can act uh, here and there. But in fact, we did live shows too. We used to do Halloween shows, live shows at the Knott'sbury Farm every Halloween. And I wrote a couple of those and co-wrote a couple of those and worked on those. And I, and I started, and he said, you got to be in it. And I went, yeah, okay. So I did, you know, parts with him. That's all the stuff I did. But yes, Battlestar Galactica. Other, there's a lot of other TV shows. Lots. Yeah. And, uh, I think 79 was more American graffiti where he shows up in again, which is, is nice to tie into the first one as well. Yeah, it was a real bomb, more American graffiti. And just about everything he says on the background of that movie I wrote, you know, so, but he's not in it, you know, he's not in it. And he, uh, uh, but he just, and he just kind of screams in the background. There's not a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, but, you know, what he wanted to do was work. Had to work. You know, the odd thing about us, him and I, uh, when I met him, I had never even seen American graffiti. And he worked in New York for a while. Uh, and we went back later uh, to NBC when they had this dream team uh, lineup at NBC, WNBC, I forget when that was 80 something, I don't know. And it was like he was the Imus. Uh, it was the beginning of uh, Howard Stern. It was him, Howard Stern, Soupy Sales. Who was the fifth? There was a fifth guy. I forget. Anyway, uh, but when he was on in New York, I was still in New York. I hadn't even gone to California when he originally went to NBC, when they brought him to, uh, you know, bring up the ratings and everything. So when you're working with him on something like Motel Hell or say, Wonder Woman or something, are you taking his dialogue specifically and polishing it and making it, making it sound like he would say it? Yeah, we're doing the best. We did the best we could to make him and i mean he could act i mean but to make him uh and look better sound better you know and we got into some trouble trying to do that because you know they were careful about their scripts or whatever and things but but they uh, you know when they had a star like him especially in the Battlestar galactica which was built around him so larson just gave him kind of free reign so he could say this and do that and and we ran lines all the time and he would ask, you know, how do I do this? And what do I do here? And what do I do there? He knew Coppola, of course, through the, uh, uh, the American Graffiti Connection, which was a, you know, a windfall. I mean, that, he had royalty checks for that forever. And there was an album involved. So, and he got, you know, he got, uh, and of course, uh, Coppola gave him a point, I think, or two points, a point or two points of the film. So he had a, he had a lot going with that film but here's what a lot of people don't know and that is that wolf which was of course before godfather but he auditioned for the godfather uh one of the pieces of controversy was uh the beard so if you're not gonna you know, to not look like wolfman jack i'll never know if that was a 
friendly thing that Coppola wanted to do, but uh, he auditioned. And I'm not even sure of the timeline. And it might, I don't know if it was for two. I don't know what it was, but he did, uh, audition and, and, um, did with, with his beard. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't shave it. And it was a big thing about shaving, you know, so he didn't do it. But I tell you, you know, he remembered those lines. I mean, we, we actually we do that now and then. Like, Let's do the Godfather thing, you know, and, uh, he was a really good, uh, a good actor. And you know, and every once in a while I see a movie and I'll tell you one specifically. Dances with Wolves. In Dances with Wolves, I forgot the name of the actor. There's a guy who takes Kevin Costner's character in a stagecoach. He winds up getting shot, but it's early on. He's taking him to the post, you know. And when I saw that film, I went, God, I mean, there's, that wolf would have been great in that, in that part. I mean, I could still see parts he could have played. And he wanted that. He wanted to do more of that. And, but he always wound up being things like that crappy Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. God, was that horrible. You know, and they, they'd call upon him. He wasn't in it, really. He was in that, you know, the end scene when they tried to recreate the cover. And he was in, uh, you know, tons of other things here and there that he'd just walk in. And then, you know, in the TV shows where he's like, hey, you're Wolfman Jack. You know, <laughs> so uh, stupid. But uh, um, And uh, he's also, he was in a movie with, uh, God, what was that called? Something Academy. There's a um, Mortuary Academy. What's that guy's name? The guy who did that film and the other films, Paul, Paul something. Paul Bartel. Yes. It's Paul Bartel's movie. Yeah. Yeah. We did that one. Well, he wasn't in that one long enough. So yeah, specifically I wanted to talk about Motel Hell and, and how you got involved with it and how he got involved with it. He had a couple of agents. He had a movie agent. Oh God, I wish I could remember that guy's name. He had one guy who specifically, and this guy was old school. He was a great guy, but he was at that time he was older, and he'd get him all these particular parts and things. For instance, when Mark and Werewolf in London came out, uh, they hired Wolf, and uh, we what we did was all, we did all the commercials, you know, because he was Werewolf, so they hired him. It's a this considered a movie assignment because we had to do the commercials and produce them for the movie when it came out, and he got that through his movie agent. And his movie agent came to the only movie agent also gave, we also had a, a Japanese show. We had a Japanese radio show, which we did from America. And he actually spoke a lot of Japanese in it. It was amazing. We had a coach. I would write these jokes in the, and, 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 you know, banter for him. And we had the, and, um, it was, uh, it was, uh, uh it, it got, well, it got canceled. Because we, because we have a, you know, we had a sense of humor that sometimes didn't, uh, you know, go over with in those days. Yeah, because you know, Wolf's the original. You know, he broke through all the typical what to say, what can't say, and it all had to be done cleverly. You know, we weren't, you know, by the time Howard Stern was able to say, you know, all those words and drop bombs and stuff, but we were getting canceled for doing, you know, regular stuff that was just considered hey. It could be interpreted. So his agent, that guy, the guy, I can't remember his name. I'm sorry. I am, he's probably dead and I, I'm sorry, wherever you are. And he came to Wolf and he said, there's this movie. He said, uh, there's a movie. You got to be in it. He said, uh, anyway, that's how he was selling it to Wolf. He said, Hey, you know, and you got a good part in it and this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, you know, I'm going to shoot it uh, around, I think it was Ono, it was shot in Ono, California, I believe. Oh no, the home of, uh, garlic, it was garlic capital of the world. They have an Ono, oh I think it was Ono oh at the time. I don't know if it is anymore, but they have, 
Oh, they had garlic ice cream, garlic cake, garlic. I mean, they had garlic in it. He took it and he said, so you're coming with me, Mars. He said, because we're, we got to, we got to do this stuff. We got to run the lines and do this. He says, there's a lot of stuff in here. And, uh, we got the script and we ran some lines and then, uh, uh, you know, we spent a great deal of time on that set. I was there a lot. I was there. I was, I wasn't just there. I was there when they mixed the music and did this. I don't know how, why I was there at certain times, but I got totally involved with him and we were. Were they welcoming of your presence on there? Because I, it, it, it seems like it was a family affair with the, the credited screenwriters being Robert and Stephen Charles Jaffe and then the producer being Herb Jaffe. I, I'm surprised that they even brought in anybody else to do anything on that movie because it just seems like such a Jaffe production. They uh, probably is. I don't remember any of those names. I don't remember meeting any of the Jaffe, any of those guys. Director, obviously, I saw here and there, but I don't, I don't remember. But, you know, they wanted, you know, when they make deals, uh, you know, how they made deals to get people, you know, they wanted to attract certain people. And uh, so uh, an audience. So they got him and uh, uh, and he uh, what you see in that movie. I've never I don't know the final cut. I know that recently I saw it again on one of the cable channels and it was a, a lot like the final cut I had seen before, which left out. An awful lot of Wolfman. Yeah, that's the thing. I was curious how much they shot with him and that was left on the cutting room floor. La- he did a scene. There's a scene where uh, the, uh, they kill these people in a moat in another hotel, or maybe it's a motel. I don't know what it is, but they're doing all these kinky things or hiring, right? In the background on the TV, on the, on the motel TV, is Wolf doing, uh, you know, your, the evangelistic you know, hocus pocus talk about sending money and God will save you, you know, doing that kind of thing on TV. So they were watching this guy because he and he's and then when he shows up live, he's the local guy who's in that and does that from there. You know, the evangelistic phony. He's a phony. He's fake. That stuff that they played on the TV in that scene was from an entire scene that they were going to put in the movie that set up. Where he sat and talked and cause I know, cause I wrote it and, uh, because they didn't have it, but he wanted to do this thing. So they did this thing where, you know, he did a practically a whole TV show. Now, of course, they were going to cut it here and there and put it in and out, you know, of, of the film, but eventually just cut the whole thing and just all you see from it were all the little bits from that TV in the background of other action. Uh, he wasn't happy about that. And I wasn't either because I, you know, I was another chance for, you know, I don't, I, I don't understand who can when it comes to movies. The other part of the movie that's really cut is the, uh, the church, the wedding. He marries them. That was a bigger, longer scene. There is somewhere. And I know because I have one of them. I just happened to get this. Uh, there's a real trivia piece. There's a, a play card. We used to call them play cards, isn't that? The ones outside the theater where it said, hey, come on, you know. Oh, yeah. I think they call them lobby cards sometimes. There's one, and it shows, and they, you're right, they would take various scenes from, and they'd have a number of them, uh, and they would show, they would hang them up here and there. There's one of Wolf raising his hands, because he's married uh, them, and we'll talk about them in a second. Uh, um, they married them, and uh, so he's uh, animated, and gesticulating, and they're there, 
and all the people are in the pews sitting there, right? But they didn't crop it enough. And in the far, and looking down at this poster, in the far right, in the last pew, is me. And I'm just relaxing right near a boom mic. <laughs> and they didn't crop it. So I, because <laughs> I was on set, you know, and we were doing things. And uh, I actually have a, have one of those. Someone gave it to me. said, hey, look at this. And I said, yeah, it's a play card. And they went, no, look, you're in it. That was weird. I mean, I don't know what they think and what they don't tell you. And I don't know when they're, you know, we're not uh, privy to cutting or editing or anything. And they, he just had, you know, show up, do these scenes, you get this money, and that's it, right? Uh, and that's what he did. And so how much are you in there? I don't know. I've talked to actors who have been, uh, you know, made tons of money like one month. And then you never wound up. And they were in the film like 30 seconds, you know, after going, you know, any number of times showing up to scenes and stuff so it's pretty hard to tell i we were kind of disappointed though because uh we were still looking and pushing his agent to get us you know more parts but uh so i don't know why they did that length i don't know i and me i think they just had a problem because i wasn't a writer's guild guy they were just saying hey you know i didn't i didn't care for credit <laughs> you know i mean just like you know um, and besides, they didn't take, you know, they, when they, they, they wanted to, they took advantage of me, which was because I was the, for him. So it wasn't like really, I didn't get credit and stuff. So whatever I did, they took credit for. And what am I going to do? I mean, I'm a sound, that's what I do. We spent a lot of time uh, in between takes and stuff with Rory, Wolf and I. And, uh, he was terrific. I mean, he is open, funny. And we talked about his past, although what I found out, you know, I never knew. Um, maybe everybody knows now why Rory Calhoun wasn't the biggest star in the world, because he was being primed by 20th Century Fox to be a really big star. And if you remember, you could probably name, you're Mr. Projection Booth, probably name a, a number of very big movies, Rory Calhoun. He's in two movies with Marilyn Monroe and a number of other Fox movies. He was signed to Fox. His career was ruined by Hollywood. Hollywood ruined his career. When it was discovered by the press, remember press and the Hollywood press, they were really running so many people's lives uh, with their gossip and their newspapers were big and gossip columns and movie magazines, you know, star things and everything. Uh, when uh, it came out to one of them that uh, Rock Hudson was very gay, Apparently, from what I know, I'm just telling things I know. Somebody got a uh, caught, got a whiff of this, and because he was having these huge parties that were really, uh, you know, a lot of people were knowing. And was, you know, the more people who know, the more it gets out. So he was getting a little out of hand and feeling very free because they were protecting him. You know, they knew the the studio knew a lot of this stuff was going on. They knew what was going on with him. So all this stuff was going on, and there a couple of a couple of uh, press people finally went to whoever it was and they said look we got all this stuff on rock hudson uh and uh, you know i you know well this is rock hudson this is, this is your big guy here and at that time you know who is going to come out and say they were gay no less a leading man who represents the masculine leading man you know and uh so and they said but we don't know about holding on to this story because this is big this is really big and we're depressed and this is what we do 
They said, you can't do this to us and we'll, you know, we'll deny it and what have you. And they said, well, I don't know. We got pictures. You know, we could, we could, this guy's gone, you know, and I don't know what, I don't know if they had anything against them or what have you, but, uh, they were really wanted to break this story. So the head, uh, head of the studio said, listen, listen, what if we gave you someone else? And they said, what do you mean? Said, well, we'll give you someone else. We'll let you go to town on someone. And they said, uh, what? Who? Who could I say? Well, you know, we've been grooming this guy. You you must know him. He was, and anyway, it was Rory Calhoun. And Rory had in his past had something. He went to jail or he, he, he was involved in something uh, that was criminal. And they said, and I don't know if there was money exchange hands or whatever else went on. But they said, if we give you him, will you bury the Rock Hudson story? At the time, like I said, they, they were investing in Rory and wanting and um and they agreed somehow i don't know for what other reason and they they would give up the rock story because you know there's all the mac all the machinations that the, that would have been going on behind there but anyway they said okay and to this day i think you could look in you could look in whatever uh, you could see the R- rory calhoun scandal that uh, the press made a big deal out of it and he was pretty much done from there on in i mean he, he just couldn't make the kind of movies yeah, today, what would it be? Nothing. What, what scandal today? What do you have to do? You know, but in those days, yeah. so that's why he was doing a lot of those movies, those, those really cheap movies and stuff, because he, he pretty much uh, lost his, uh, lost his way in Hollywood. And, um, by the time we saw him, I don't know what his last film was, but he, he was pretty thin. I don't know if he was sick at that time, but he was thin and, and, uh, he certainly was a, uh, an older version of the guy I saw in the 50s movies. Because I was, yeah, 50s. Mal Monroe had to be 50. And early 60s. I don't remember if I knew that then or found that out afterwards, but it didn't affect anything. He was just, uh, he was a wonderful, wonderful guy. And um, I think we spend more time with Rory Calhoun than than anyone else in this. Because, you know, he, he could phone that in. I mean, he was a real actor. I want to know about the documentary about you. What documentary? Tenacity and Gratitude, the Frank Cotolo story. Oh, yeah, that. If <laughs> you look that up, oh, my God. The person who did that, a young comedian who is now in L.A., a comedian who was going to college, taking film and everything. When I, uh, when I came into this town where I live now, which is very rural Pennsylvania, uh, I, you know, the here and there people go he did what he did you know this was a big thing nobody you know i just and i was like yeah okay fine but uh, so this kid uh uh you know he found a way to meet me i met him and helped him out he wants to be a comedian he said that he likes films he wants to do films so he uh he's and he had to, he came to me one day and he was in college he said i have to do a you know something like a feature thing and i have to do it he's uh you know he said so why don't i do it by you and I said, because it's not interesting, <laughs> because it's ridiculous. What? So uh, he said, uh, he said, no, but, you know, you're like, uh, you know. Uh, uh. So I, eventually I said, look, why not help him out? You know, I, but I gave him some conditions. I said, we have to make it half, you know, why make it as documentary as you want. But it also has to be mockumentary, too. I said, so we could put some funny things in there and do, you know, uh, so I just uh went along with them and you know we did crazy things around town and stuff and and then we talked about wolf and stuff that's all it is. and, and people, people actually bought it 
actually, it's a lot. I said, edit this thing. It came out. It was like, it gave me like six discs. I said, give me a break. Come on. I mean, there were granted there, you know, it's not all about me that I really don't think there's that much anyway, but I just went funny today to this day. You know, he's a stand up comic in LA and I still write uh, some of his material. Tell me about uh, the return of Turk. Is it Bahrain? I've written a number of books. At a certain point, I uh, to uh, circumvent. Uh, I mean, I have an agent. I have an agent now and stuff. But we, uh, I, I was just, uh, you know, writing books. I said, you know, I go to the Amazon. They give you seventy percent. Throw some books on there. You know, I got. And I was writing more uh, other things. I wrote uh, for Lulu. That's Lulu dot com. There's three like chat books of. Uh, Funny uh, stories, news things, and you know, and but the return of Turk Bahrain is what this kid uh, wants. Uh, Jeremy Long, his name is. He wants to. He he was trying to pitch this thing as a web series. Turk Bahrain is the uh, the detective. You know what it is? It's uh, you know you get the old uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, who's the famous Ring Ladner type? You know Humphrey Bogart, Maltese Falcon type guy. Uh, only this guy, he's, uh, Turk Bahrain is the detective known to uh, everyone as someone else. The, and the book has stories of Turk, Turk, uh, Turk Bahrain. It's called The Return of Turk Bahrain. Um, no, there's no other, there's no book. There's no book. He didn't go anywhere. So the book is, uh, is uh, one of my, uh, one of the better sellers. It's, it's a pretty funny thing. And, you know, last I heard, he said, hey, maybe I can get this into it because he works, also works for people. Animated, I don't know, whatever. I, I don't keep much track of this, but said, yeah, we can do a web series. But uh, there is a web series. Uh, now, there's another book I have now called License to Skill, and that uh, that has, was made into a screenplay and has been kicking around Hollywood for years now. Uh, nobody knows how to make it. Nobody cares. And you know, it's one of those things. But it uh, it may turn into an animated uh, series somewhere now so that's in the works but the point is i went you know that's part of all the books i have i have uh uh books over at blurb.com molotov memoirs molotov memoirs one of my favorites because molotov memoirs is the closest thing to an autobiography i could write without telling the truth uh that's pretty funny but i got some really good reviews uh, and, uh, cause I, I, I really like that. Then there's a more Molotov memoirs of the sequel. And then there's, uh, some serious books over at uh, Amazon, like, uh, Sweet Shepherd, which I decided to write a novel when I couldn't sell the treatment. It's hard enough to sell in Hollywood. How do you sell out of Hollywood? I, I got a great agent now, though, and we're, we're, um, we got a, they got some material that might be coming out soon that's really cool. Tell me about your podcast. It's not a podcast. And that's, I'm always, I'm always telling people on my show, uh, in night, in, uh, the early 2000s, uh, two guys, the Waskowitz brothers called me up and said, Hey, Frank, you know, I did music and they did songs and stuff. And I tossed them onto this, uh, a website, which was, you know, before there was mp3.com and all that stuff, there was this independent website called ampcast.com. Uh, it was uh, early in the uh, 2000s, and they said, "Hey, listen, we're going to do internet radio." They said, "And uh, and of course, well, it's the same thing." And you've done real radio. This is the beginning of internet radio, and I went, "Yeah, I've done. Yeah, I did real radio, but I don't do it." And they said, "Well, how would you like to do it again, live on the internet?" And I went, 
I was immediately intimidated because I, I'm not a techie guy and I went, I have no idea how to do this. And it sounds like an awful lot of work. And if you want to turn me off, <laughs> tell me I have to do a lot of work and learn things. I'm just, you know, I'm too fly by night. So anyway, they talked me, they helped me and they put it all together. Uh, and, uh, I named it Catolo Chronicles and it's not about me. It, that's a sentence. Catolo Chronicles. That's what I do. And they gave me two hours on a Thursday night. And it was, and everything else on the AmpCast channel, because they, they started internet radio, AmpCast. And they, uh, they had all music shows and they had all these people who weren't, you know, who wanted to play radio. These kids and people and young people, uh, who wanted to do radio and said, no, you could do whatever you want. And I said, okay. I said, I'll do it if you, under one condition, you let me do anything I want. And uh, don't ever tell me to do this or that or the other thing. They said, fine, it's yours. And and, and this is how this connects with Wolf. When they did that, it, it, I said, wow, I'm actually doing what Wolf did when he went to XCRF, when you, you know, when he went down to Mexico. There's no more frontiers of radio, I said, but they're giving me an opportunity to do to, you know, be in, a, in the beginning. Yeah, this is the frontier of who knows where Internet radio is going to go. And so I said, okay, I'll try it out. We'll see how it goes, you know? And that was uh, now like 21 years I've been on. And I'm alive every week, Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern uh, for at most two hours. Sometimes I end a little early or anything. And it's that was the beginning of it. it and before there were podcasts, remember, this was, uh, but people couldn't save it. It was a long, it's two hours. And in the beginning, we couldn't even have guests. So I had to do this, you know, Gene Shepard thing, which was great because I was real, you know, I was really into Gene Shepard, uh, um, radio and stuff. And I knew, so I, you know, I kind of took on my own, uh, my own thing. I kept going and then eventually we could have phones. Uh, so we had phones with guests. We had the, we, and you know, people didn't want to go on internet rate. They didn't want anything to do with the internet at one point when we were doing it. They were something like that. Well, really? Internet radio? Well, sorry. So we're trying to get some names. Eventually, we did get a couple of people said, yeah, oh, come on. Well, Frank, this has been delightful. Thank you so much. I'm glad you're delighted. <laughs> I haven't told the stories in a while. I don't know if I think you're, you get the exclusive on the Motel Hell stuff. I'll tell you how much. We are back and we are talking about Motel Hell. And yeah, we talked a little bit about some of the other movies that this is reminiscent of. The Chainsaw Fight that happens in Texas Chainsaw Massacre with uh, 2, which will come out after this movie. I was also reminded of the incredible Hong Kong film Tiger on Beat, talking about uh, incredible chainsaw fights. You don't get to see chainsaw fights in movies too often. 
And that's a damn shame because who doesn't? I have to see this Hong Kong movie. I've, I've says, I'm like you. I've seen Texas Chainsaw too, like so many times, and that is an epic chainsaw duel. And especially because it's coupled with Dennis Hopper saying, "I'm the Lord of the Harvest." I need that as a ringtone right now. <laughs> I love that movie so much. I I just wish it was ten minutes shorter at the end. It's such every time I watch it, I'm like. This film is amazing. This is incredible. Why 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 did why did I like it more? Why is everybody down on it? And then you get to the last twenty minutes and you're like, please edit this shorter. Just keeps running around those fucking tunnels. <laughs> uh a chainsaw fight though that this definitely has this film in mind when they made it was uh Tucker and Dale versus Evil. That's I I I would be very surprised if this wasn't one of the films they watch for research on that. The the continuation of exploitation and country versus city associations it's just such a fun movie i love tucker and dale versus evil the first time i watched it i was just like oh i don't know if this movie is for me and then probably within 15 minutes i was just like this movie was made for me i'm really liking this and then i've gone on to show it to so many people and it's just the same thing it's like what are you showing me and then after a little bit it's like okay now i get it i'm with this movie yeah oh, it's it's so much it's so much fun and I, th- I think it does a beautiful job of being really obvious and a lot more subtle than it appears and it, it can actually take a couple of times to be like oh it it she her job her, her her education is in communication, but this film really is about our failure to communicate, which is you know very pertinent. <laughs> a couple of weekends ago, my partner and I had a massive movie marathon day, and we did uh, deranged, um, necromantic, the woman, and then at the end she's like, "I need something nicer to go to bed on." So we did Tucker and Dale versus Evil as the going out film, and it was a perfect cherry on top of a day of extremely fucked, wrong, horrific films. It still kept that tone and theme, and it didn't feel like we are going too much left field, but it was still, well, it, compared to the films that have followed, nice. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> See, I would have recommended finishing up with Necromantic 2, because it has a musical number. As, that is true, but I think we need it. This was like at 11.30 at night after a lot of beer, so we did something a little bouncier than uh, <laughs> Necromantic 2. <laughs> I think doing two York films in one day is a bit much even for me. I like to pay, space him out a little bit, let it, you know, really savor that meal. I, I, I'm like Ida. I'm just like gorging on the German horror. Uh, they talk a little bit about this in the commentary of how much Kathy Bates' performance in Misery it feels very much like Ida, like Nancy Parsons' performance here. And there's actually a couple of interesting connections that make me not convinced, but I wouldn't be surprised to find out that there was some inspiration taken from this for Misery because the cinematographer on Motel Hell was also the cinematographer on Stand By Me, which is directed by Rob Reiner, and who, of course, directed Misery. And in addition to that, uh, apparently Nancy Parsons was much more famous as a classical stage actress and was actually very well known in the theatre industry as a fantastic actress. And I'm pretty sure Kathy Bates came from a theatre background, at least has done theatre. So I wouldn't be surprised if Kathy Bates was familiar with Nancy Parsons and possibly took some inspiration from that. And even if that isn't the case, 
knowing Stephen King and his taste in films, Stephen King definitely saw this film and definitely liked this film. So I wouldn't be surprised there if there was some elements of this drawn out for the writing of the book itself. Ida is great in that you never know what she's going to do next. She just is so mercurial and just has that little gleam in her eye. And you don't know if she's going to give you a glass of champagne or shoot you with a hypodermic that's bigger than your arm. You know, she just, and that's the great kind of performance that she's giving is that you never can tell what's going on behind her eyes and that she can be that, that violent and also that sweet because she is sweet a lot of times in this film. Oh yeah. I mean, you see her kind of you know, whistling while she works the aforementioned little feet. I'm so jealous because having big tall girl feet, you know, it's uh, I envy her, her wee, her wee little feet, but, uh, but seriously, no, she, you know, she's often singing and she is like, she is a lot of fun. And that is like, that's a perfect thing to point out about her. And actually I think I, and then I completely could see Stephen King loving. I mean, when you think small town horror in America and you think Americana horror of, you know, King is always, you know, he's, you know, looms over that pretty, pretty large and in charge. So this, this would, be very much i think at his wheelhouse yeah you can almost imagine ida pulling herself out of that hole at the end and sneaking off and becoming <laughs> i can't remember, can't remember the character's name but becoming the character from annie oh annie yeah wilkes you can imagine her sneaking off and taking on a new name and becoming annie wilkes and <laughs> misery maybe misery is a sequel to motel hell who knows just putting it out there I'm surprised they never did a, a sequel to Misery called Misery Loves Company. Give it a year or two, and Netflix will have that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, if they're doing a prequel to Nurse Ratched, who knows? Oh. There could be a sequel to Annie Wilkes any minute now. Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, I was, what was that? I, when I was editing our piece and we were one of our podcast episodes, I was talking about flowers in the attic, and I was just like, oh, should I put in something about which Nurse Ratched? I'm referring to it. I was like, no, screw it. There's, I'm, that's fine. There's only one nurse ratchet and it's Louise Fletcher. Why am I getting, I've, all my the names are getting mixed up at the moment. COVID brain. Watching this again and thinking about the Stand By Me and Stephen King and, and the, like I said, the feeling it gives me of those old Disney films. I, I actually think that this should be considered in the cycle of 80s nostalgia films. I think it's, it's, you know, it's a very obviously, nostalgic for texas chainsaw and psycho but as i think it's nostalgic for those kind of small town old exploitation kind of films and disney family films very much the look of it the aesthetic that color scheme the the rural town the drive-ins that were you know already starting to be more of a thing of the past it does tie in with the stand by me's and the greases and trying to think of some of the other later 80s examples, but I think it is part of that cycle of America looking back over the previous 20 to 30 years and reincorporating the aesthetic and the themes and the styles and the music and making it into something that is a lot more new than the the good <laughs> the good version of that nostalgia. This is very much the inverted uh, motel hell to the mainstream's motel hello. <laughs> But, yeah, I, I think it should be included as part of that cycle. I think it's actually a really interesting part of that, and it actually makes the film more interesting and textured by thinking about it that way. It's very fascinating to me that this came out as 
Reagan was campaigning. This is pre-election 1980 kind of stuff, but this fits into Reaganomics so well and just that whole era. And you're right as far as the nostalgia. And that's basically what Reagan played on was like, we're going to return to the 50s values. We're going to return to those bedtime for Bonzo type of days. And this is right there with this, but it is also showing that really dark underbelly of the people that need to get ahead and need to eke out a living and they'll do anything to do it, including eating their fellow man. But they'll make the excuses that they're not humans, they're they're animals to them. I mean, this is, you know, yuppie culture, but played out in a rural setting. Yeah, so it's looking it's, – it's that yuppie culture, even prefiguring the hipster, uh, foodie kind of how it will transform into that kind of aspect and 20 years later. It, yeah, historically, it is really interesting when it appears because it is – just before Friday the 3rd. I think it was maybe before Friday the 13th, but Friday the 13th maybe came out just before it. And so it is more that it, it was made on the the heels of the success of the financial success of Halloween and Dawn of the Dead, all the studios going, we want horror films. And United Artists, who produced it, hadn't done a lot of horror films in this period. It's mainly just uh, Carrie and then cruising about the same time. Other than that, there's really not many horror films in their catalogue from this period or even earlier. Uh, and so there is a company that is more used to doing 70s Oscar, 60s, even 50s Oscar baity kind of stuff, you know, United Artists going back to Charlie Chaplin and all these amazing creatives and very much the, the, the filmmaker's studio. And so the film has a lot more maturity and texture and they did have quite a large budget for this but it lands right at the point at which this film much like sorcerer landing with star wars that this kind of film ceases to have the appeal that it might have had a couple of years before uh, and that even with being it was a release to promote it as a horror film didn't do well the studio pulled it re-released it promoting it more as a comedy and it did quite well so even that's quite interesting that it failed to sell people as a horror film because everyone was going, oh no, we're, we're into the, we're in, you know, Sean Cunningham, Craven escalation mode, whereas this is something very, very different. But then it's also interesting that the film that they launched into making, United Arts launched into making almost immediately after this was Heaven's Gate, which was the actual full stop of the whole studio and that type of production and perspective on filmmaking and paves the way for the, the hairdressing style of cinema that would come to dominate most of the 80s. I, I always call it, I always think of it as hairdressing style, not because of hairstyles, but I just, I can't remember who it was, but there was some quote from someone who said that the, the problem with the 80s was that the technology got so cheap that even hairdressers could become filmmakers. <laughs> and I don't necessarily, I'm sure there's probably some hairdressers out there who can make amazing films, but it does, especially given the styles of the time, like it does communicate something of what was to come in the 80s of the just proliferation of escalation. <laughs> You're describing the John Peters syndrome there. All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. They say that sometimes when you have a traumatic experience that it can alter your perception. It can communicate with the other side. It can see spirits. I don't know why. On 
July 19th, Universal Pictures invites you to experience another side of the other side. The Frighteners, rated R, starts Friday, July 19th at theaters everywhere. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Ben and Heather. Heather, what has been keeping you busy lately? Life, the universe, and everything. Um, in addition to that, though, you can read my interview with the amazing women behind the Super Duper Muses podcast. We talk about all things girls, groupies, art, inspiration, and more. Uh, I've also written about the new 2020 documentary, Skin, A History of Nudity in the Movies. Both articles are live over at diaboliquemagazine.com. I don't think those guys wanted to send me a screener after I reviewed their last documentary. They're probably not going to want me... <laughs> reviewing it's well I I shouldn't say anything read read my piece but I talk about strengths and weaknesses and Malcolm McDowell Ben what's the latest with you Uh, we've just dropped our brand new podcast Video Vortex podcast Uh, it's interesting being back in the saddle of my own podcast with a couple of friends for the first time in 10 years and so uh, you can find us at videovortex.podbean.com on Twitter at uh, Podcast Vortex, where a couple of ex-academics who are a fair few years out of university now and decided we wanted to get back together and talk about rambling film topics and go wherever we ended up, which has us going everywhere from history, ideas, film theory to weird, bizarre digressions. Uh, it's with my co-hosts Ben and Steph. And, uh, yeah, we're just, uh, just about to release our third episode. We're doing the second episode, first episode, total train wreck of us introducing ourselves. Second episode, we're doing national cinema. And the third episode, we've done cars and cinema. And yeah, the, the third episode talking about cars and cinema was actually, it was really fun. We went to some really strange places and I end up talking about helicopters more than I should have in a podcast about cars. But <laughs> yeah, so that's been keeping us pretty busy while everything's, uh, pretty quiet with, you know, the world ending. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. And I still can't believe just what I see Your face is like the morning sunshine As it says, it's welcome out to me I was so blinded by your beauty That I didn't think to How when you said you want to serve me That it might just lead to my demise You're eating out my heart and soul, babe You're feasting on my better side Never know what a pretty face can hide 
lying I know the two are much the same So even when you say you need me I fear for you it's just a game I thought that I would always trust you The love from you I'd always be But now I know that I was used to go That all you wanted was of me You're eating out my heart and soul, babe You're feasting on my better side This way, girl You never know What a pretty face can hide
to know you're walking with somebody new and to know you're talking of something borrowed and something blue It's eating my heart out Do you know you'll whisper I do It's eating my heart out Because I'll always love you
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.